Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the law firm of Davis Malm. Whether you're a buyer, seller, investor, or lender, their business attorneys understand that each deal has unique needs and requirements. Building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, since COVID-19 officially became a pandemic, governors of America have had to figure out how to deal with it in their own ways. The lack of leadership from the Oval Office has forced the states to create an unbalanced patchwork of strategies to solve the problem. One thing that unites them all, though, the peak everywhere is just weeks away. In a couple of minutes, we'll talk to Chuck Todd about that and why the president's devoted base online has turned on Dr. Fauci. Complete chaos. That's how staffers at Soldiers Home in Holyoke described the conditions veterans who were staying there faced after an outbreak of COVID-19. Now, 15 vets have lost their lives. Staffers speaking out, saying the home did nothing to mitigate the problem. Governor Baker's ordered an independent investigation, while Holyoke Mayor Alex Morris said the home failed to do their job. In a few minutes, Mayor Morris will join us to talk about what happened and what the city plans to do next. All that coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Eastern Bradley, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Morning, Jim. How are you holding up? I'm, I'm good. Are you good? I, so far, I so guess. So far, so yeah. good. So every day, Anthony Fauci addresses the nation during the coronavirus task force briefings, telling us how we can do our best to save our lives and others by practicing social distancing and self-distancing, like not touching our own faces. But the irony is that in doing it, he's putting his own life at risk, apparently, becoming a target of online conspiracy theorists who threaten to kill him for undermining the president and bringing the economy to a standstill. Joining us to talk about this and other political headlines surrounding the coronavirus outbreak is Chuck Todd. Chuck, of course, is the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10.30 on NBC Boston, Channel 10 on most providers. Also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Hello there, Chuck Todd. How are we doing? Hey, okay. Chuck. Well, how are you doing? How are you doing? The show's you got to be doing it totally differently now, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it is Groundhog Day. <laughs> every day of the day is worse, you know. Yeah. Between every day is good. We're in the we're in the we're in the down part of the Groundhog Day movie, right? Where every day you're like wake up and you're like, oh, oh, oh. So I can't wait to wake up and you start to think you live your better day, where you play piano better, where you you know all those all those little things. Right now, I don't think we're doesn't feel like. There is um, too much good news every day you wake up. Well, you know, I was going to bring this up later. We'll get back to Fauci. I don't mean to ignore it. But that's one of the themes of our first hour here that I was going to run by you. I know you've discussed this uh, this Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation Mm -hmm. model that apparently caused the Mm -hmm. president to get religion. I think you discussed it with Burks on Dr. Burks on Sunday. I had one of the researchers on TV with me last night. I'm embarrassed to say I had pretty much ignored it except for the raw numbers and then when people go to the website and a little later i'll give people the web address uh you can look at the united states uh what the peak day is going to be how many deaths you look at the graphs the the curves you can go state by state all 50 states in dc and i have to say and i want to say this carefully while the numbers are horrifying uh uh when you think of in massachusetts our peak day is 100 deaths in mid-april you know 100 of your friends and neighbors whatever in some ways, you look at this, and we've all been saying, can we get a date? Can we get an end point? Well, we still don't have that. The curves, according to this model, 
do go down after that date. And you can see that if you can self-distance, I think they've said till the end of May, the model was based upon, that by early May in most states, maybe not California and some of the states out west, we do get closer to seeing the light at the end of the you-know-what. And so I have to say, in some perverse way, I found this yeah. as a hopeful thing. Did you or, or no? Well, yeah, well, it's it's funny you say it that way. Yeah, just as the phrase we used two days ago was, "Tell it to me straight, Doc." Uh-huh. Right? There's that point, right? Where you just just tell me what it is. Don't give me. We can get through this. Don't give me that. Just tell me what it is. And you're right. There is the the fact that there's now certainty through end of May. Um, the fact that there's you know it, it yes, and I will say this. I think the story out in California and Washington state is encouraging. The fact is they were ahead of the rest of the country in dealing with this ahead of the rest of the country in shutting it down. And it does look like they are buying themselves enough time that they're going to have enough beds mm-hmm. and they may have enough ventilators. That doesn't mean they've stopped the virus. And I think the hardest part of this is going to be once we show some success, there's going to be this immediate, Oh, okay. I can relax now. And the thing is, is that we're not in order to keep the success, you can't relax. And I think that's going to be the next challenge that we face as a society, not just as a country, just as a society. I agree with that. But, you know, at the same time, you're an original Floridian, uh, Chuck Todd, and we just had the governor there finally say, uh, DeSantis finally say there's got to be an official uh, stay-at-home kind of deal. Yeah. You wonder, uh, and they're, they're having big spikes in, in your home state. I will say this, you know, there was always been a point, a lot of us who've been Floridians for years, Florida is a very, what I would call, undergoverned state. What I mean by that is, <laughs> it's it, you know, and it, it is it is decided that, you know, we can, we don't have to have as many rules and laws as everybody else. They still, the state legislature, you know, meets, you know, every other year type of thing. It's like barely a state legislature. It's a part-time legislature. You would think Florida was a backwoods you know, leg- you know, some like tiny, small state, maybe three or four congressional districts, the way its politics acts. And there was always been a point that at some point, Florida's inability to self-govern was going to was going to was going to cause major problems. And this dominance of rural lawmakers that have like tried to govern the state as if Miami didn't exist and Orlando and Tampa didn't exist other than to infuse tax dollars into the coffers. I just think the whole, you know, the whole, the whole house of cards that the Florida uh, Republicans have built over the last couple of decades may come crumbling down in this crisis. Well, you know, I don't mean to keep self-promoting, but this this Ali Mokdad from this University of Washington Institute that I had on last night, mm-hmm. who actually spoke to the governor there, apparently is what convinced DeSantis to do this. I had to coax it out of him, mm-hmm. but I know this is obvious, but I wanted him to say it by delaying. More people died in Florida than yeah. would have died if he had acted like a grown-up. People are dead because DeSantis well, especially, had this libertarian sickness or way, whatever it is. Yeah. Go ahead, Marjorie. I was just going to say, I don't know Florida like you do, but you know, my perception from Boston is that there's an awful lot of people who go to Florida to retire and are older. I mean, when I've been there, you know, a lot of people are old. I think it's, a, it's why he wasn't on the early side of this, you know, I don't, I don't look our governor here in Virginia, Ralph Northam was also late, mm. was also behind and he's been governing, 
he's been governing as if he's the governor of Richmond and forgets that Northern Virginia exists. And literally Northern Virginia is on a trajectory where Washington, D.C. and suburban Maryland are, and Richmond is on a different trajectory. So he's been following that trajectory. You're like, yeah, but the majority of your first of all, I want to say a majority of your voters live in Northern Virginia, Governor. Um, but more importantly, a majority of your cases are. And that's what happens in Florida. Florida governors, particularly on the Republican side, they govern from or north of Orlando and yeah. Fort Myers. That's who they think their constituents are. They don't think about the, they, you know, it's politically disadvantage. It politically disadvantages you in a Republican Party if you if you govern too much for South uh, Southeast Florida. So it, it's certainly a political reason for the explanation there, and that he was getting political pressure from ag interests, from all these conservative interests to 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 not cave to the pressure. I mean, ironically, the Florida governor did do a shelter-in-place order for the two counties in South Florida. You know, because he knew he wouldn't alienate any of the business community there. So, so it was just a, you know, it's so oh it, it is God. like I said, Florida has been a back sort of a, a backwater political scene for my entire lifetime. And I think it's going to catch up. Well. OK, Chuck Todd, let's get back to uh, what Jim started out talking about. Dr. Fauci, apparently now he has to have uh, D.C. Metropolitan Police as security, uh, including all around his home because of threats against his life? Well, I, I, I hate to say that I'm not surprised, but I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, um, the amount of the, the way the way the uh, online world works, the way um, sort of pugilistic politics has been mainstreamed, and basically some extremists have gotten mainstreamed into political, you know, people that normally would have been considered on the Alex Jones wing, you know, have gotten mainstreamed and get and and get mainstream attention and, and are, are targeting Fauci. Um, and, and these people have followers that are a little bit unhinged. So sadly, um, to me, it's just sort of sign of the times. Well, you know, to speak to his skill, though, I think the fact that the guy has not gotten fired by Trump is a testament not only to his scientific skills, <laughs> but his political skills. Marjorie and I are having a debate before we talk to you, Chuck. I was saying... Like Jim, Kramer, like yeah. Jim Kramer said it better than anybody. He's what, just... He's the closest thing we have to Jonas Salk. Okay. <laughs> That's a great thought. Oh, <laughs> excellent. He's a living. That's yeah. great. Mr. Polio. You can't fire Jonas Salk. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think he, I think he, uh, I think he walks a very fine line quite brilliantly. I, I really do. I think he's been amazing. You with Trump. Well, yes. Well, he's also a truth that, teller without yes. being scary. Right. But go ahead. I'm sorry, Chuck. And, and, and I feel like he is, you could tell his confidence and his advice has only grown. And it's clear he's now untouchable. Trump can't touch him. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what happens. Trump can't touch him. And I think that um, Fauci is what I'm impressed with is how he uses that political capital. He's careful with how he uses it, but he uses it. He doesn't just bank it, um, which I appreciate as well. Well, Jonas Salk, I'd say Mr. Rogers, too. I mean, there's a lot of there's a (laughs) lot of heroes in there you know he's happy, he is the definition of happy warrior yeah right when you say that phrase happy warrior yeah. you're like that guy is gonna stay up later and work harder than everybody else and he's always got a goddamn smile on his face he does and he's 79 79 years old. i was just gonna he gives say hope to us all <laughs> yeah. you know yes, he, he hasn't lost his marbles one little bit <laughs> well speaking of marbles oh, no. can, can we were for president there you go exactly. can we return to uh donald trump for a second marjorie and i were having a rather heated discussion yeah. back and forth before 
you called in. I was saying that, you know, other than, and it's always, you have to do an other than with the president, other than him saying yesterday, he couldn't resist, I'm number one on Facebook. And I think the day before he had to mention that impeachment was a hoax. Other than that, it appears that combining the Fauci's of the world with the University of Washington thing, he seems to finally almost, almost get it. Marjorie could not uh, disagree with me more. Where are you on this? Oh, he is a look. He has to. It has to touch him before he takes anything seriously. I think what did it is the. He has practically said it himself. He's got a friend in a coma. Yeah. I think that's what did it. I think it. And he described the friend. He's about basically. It sounds like the guy is his age. He goes. He's a little bit heavier, a little bit older, which probably means he's the exact same age and he's probably a little bit skinnier. Um, but, but it clearly rattled him. Okay. Yeah. It clearly rattled him. And he's like, this thing isn't the flu. And you're just like, wait, you told us three weeks ago it was just like the flu. The point being, though, you know, and this is this is the history of Donald Trump for his entire life. If it doesn't happen to him, it doesn't exist. But once it happens to him, it's the most important thing that's ever happened. Well, you know, maybe that's why one of the things that really put me over the edge uh, in the last couple of days was so many people have lost their jobs. We know they're just, you know, what is it, 6.6 million people now? Yeah, or, just this morning. Uh, 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 and and they have an opportunity, a lot of these people, to get Obamacare. And um, he's not going to extend the period that you can... I bet you, I bet you he changes his mind on this. I hope so, because it's, I, he's, I you, you're basically you know saying, screw you, to all these people. You could hear it in his own voice yesterday. So somebody asked Pence that question. And Pence ducks the question and instead talks about the expansion of Medicaid in different places and that that has helped. And then the follow-up person follows up and notes and says, no, 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 I'm talking about the people that don't have, you know, that could, that aren't poor enough for Medicaid but aren't wealthy, you know, and all that stuff. And Trump chimes in and says, he went, I'm impressed. He, 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 you know, he spent all that time talking and didn't answer your question, John referring to John Roberts, and you're like, oh, my God, it was true. Trump was right and totally avoided the question about uh, opening it up. And then Trump says, we're going to take a look at it again. I have a feeling, you know, Trump, first of all, loves to act like he saves the day. I'm sure Trump didn't want to reopen Obamacare, okay? But he heard how bad the answer sounds. That is one thing about Trump, right? He doesn't want to sound like he doesn't care. You, you know, whatever it is, you can get into the motives in his head. I wouldn't be surprised if he if he if he flips on that because he thinks it's he, because frankly, he's he you know, he does. He's not afraid of he thinks trashing Medicaid and Medicare is a bad idea. So he's always been hesitant, unlike the rest of his party, to 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 attack those two programs. You know, we are still in an election year, even though you wouldn't know it. You spoke to uh, Biden, who I guess is slightly reemerged. What's your take on what he's doing, what he should be doing? I mean, he has virtually disappeared from view for it's fairly a fine obvious. line. Like, yeah. I think it's tough. He can't. I think he's got to give his point of view. I think he can backseat drive a little. Right. More than most people can get away with backseat driving the president in a moment like this. But he's also got to be careful. Right. You've got to you sort of got to let the government do its job. Um, You can make suggestions of how you you know do this. You got to lay out how you would handle this differently. 
Um, look, I do think he has an advantage that a candidate with less, who is less experienced, let me put it another way. Imagine if Barack Obama had become the de facto nominee. All right. He had never, and it's the Barack Obama 2008, and this happens. Okay. And suddenly he's having, and, and, and people are like, well, we don't know Obama. Yeah. The, the, I think what helps Biden is that Biden's at least a known entity. And I think if any sort of nominee could handle being frozen in place for a while, it's Biden. Nobody looks at Biden and says, is he up to this? Or has, can he do this? Eh, he's been in government forever. He knows what he's doing. Or, so he doesn't have to prove that he can do this. So that's helpful. So it allows him to, to take this more passive route here. I, I mean, I think this would be a greater challenge if this were Kamala Harris, a greater challenge, you know, for somebody right. who was newer to government. Um, so in that sense, I think he can, he can withstand this. Um, look, I think it's fine this way, frankly. And I actually think Biden benefits. He's not the, nobody loves seeing Biden campaign all the time anyway. No, they don't. So if anybody benefits, from, I think this hurts Trump more than it hurts Biden. How part. so? Because Trump feed, cause Trump feeds off of it. Trump needs the rallies. Trump needs to campaign. Trump hates governing. He loves campaigning. He hates governing. Um, Biden loves governing. So I, I, you know, I think Biden likes hanging out with people, but I don't think he's needs the, the he doesn't need campaigning the way I think Trump really needs it. I think Trump hurts. It's hurting more. And I think this is Trump. These these briefings are going to. I, I'm a you know I'm an advocate of 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 leaning on you show more of these briefings than you don't. Okay, I, I'm on that side of the fence. Why? Why? On different sides of the fence. Because I think Americans need to see their president. You need to see it for yourself. You know, I'm just going to say, if the emperor, if the emperor has no clothes on a given day, the public needs to see that the emperor chose not to wear clothes that day. And I, I, I just think that that's the, you know, I think our job is to vigorously report it out, let people know what they're seeing. Don't pretend you're see, you're seeing something that they didn't see. You know that sort of thing. But I think these things, and I frankly think that they'll they'll be his un they, he because he so desperately needs to campaign he will these will be his he'll make a lot of unforced errors in, you know it's interesting uh, chuck i was flipping around yesterday during the president's uh, uh coronavirus uh, uh, task force briefing and i noticed you, you must be very influential influential with your bosses because you guys and uh at msnbc it was you were covering it CNN cut away. Fox was covering it, and the local. Television... We cut away. No, we oh, cut, did you cut away? We I cut didn't away see that. A few times. You did. We, okay. You know, what we did? We have a new policy. All right, and and the way look, this is the way I'm doing it. If it's irrelevant, pull out. Yeah. But we know there's relevant portions, mm-hmm. and so we go back. So look, we took Secretary Esper and General Milley. At the end of the day, it's the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs. But after that, we cut away. And, and then went to our Pentagon correspondent and go, what the heck was that about? And she explained, she goes, yeah, um, this wouldn't have even made a briefing at the Pentagon. Yeah. So we were able to get a contact. And then when the president started taking questions, I said, well, I would like to know what's going on with the USS Teddy Roosevelt. Hopefully there'll be a question about that. So we went back for questions. And lo and behold, there was a question about the Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. So um, I think there, you know, that's the way I've, I, I, we've chosen to do it. We've got a great, you know, which is, and then we went back for the scientists and then we pulled out, you know, when it when it was clear that that he was, you know, refusing to leave. Right. He didn't hear the music. So we left. Early. So we left it two or three times. But we went back. And yeah. I think that 
the way you do it, which is, you know, there is news buried in these briefings. Oh, yeah. You just have to be nimble about it. Well, I was glad to see our local news <clears throat> stations uh, ran their local news because I think people do like to see mm-hmm. the local news, and they were running at the uh, well, local yeah. news. Oh, but can I, I just end, say, as a prominent newsman, my approach <laughs> right, is Jim. I watch 10 minutes of Ozark, go back to Trump <laughs> for two minutes, 10 more minutes of Ozark, and then two more minutes of Trump. So maybe you should try that, Chuck Todd. I don't mean to be giving you advice, well, but it works. the problem is, is, is the, well, uh, Ozark, that's real life, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you? Can I just tell you? I love. We love Ozark in this household. All I can tell you is what that movie's done. What movie? What that show has done for me is I look at about every third storefront in a strip mall and assume it's a money laundering front. <laughs> like it has convinced me that everything is a money laundering front. Right? Like that's the one thing that Ozark has done. You look around, you're like, oh, there's no customers in there. Money laundering front. Oh, look at that. Nobody's in there. Money laundering front. You know? <laughs> Chuck, hey, Chuck, it's great to talk to you. Stay healthy. Thank you so and much, well. Chuck. Good to you talk guys to you. Yeah. Chuck Todd joins us every week. He's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10:30 on NBC Boston, channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC. That's on every day at five o'clock. I catch you on channel 37 on MSNBC. And Chuck Todd is also political director for NBC News. Up next, Holyoke Mayor Alex Morse. He's going to tell us, update us on a terrible tragedy involving veterans there. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. Again, as of today, 15 residents of the Holyoke Soldiers Home have died amid the coronavirus pandemic, some and potentially all from COVID-19. When news of the outbreak at the Soldiers Home broke, it shocked local officials and appeared to have caught state officials off guard as well. Holyoke's Mayor Alex Moore says days went by before the initial deaths were reported, and had it not been for an anonymous tip from an employee there, Mayor Morse might not have found about how dire the situation at the soldier's home had become. How this got so out of hand is now the subject of an investigation. Governor Baker announced yesterday the state has hired an independent attorney, former prosecutor, to investigate this. Alex Morse joins us now in line. Mayor Morse, thanks so much for your time. Of course. Good morning, Jim. Yeah, thank you very much, Mayor Morse, for joining us. So give us uh, the timeline. What happened before you got this anonymous tip? Uh, anonymous tip? So we were aware that there was one initial case of of COVID-19 at the soldier's home, and our Board of Health discovered on Friday that the one case had then turned into several cases, uh, but the Board of Health was not told about any deaths related to coronavirus or the extent of of the spread. And on Saturday morning is when I received the email from an employee at the soldier's home, you know, pretty much saying, you know, don't believe what leadership is saying. Um, These are horrendous working conditions, um, you know, we're, we don't have adequate personal protective equipment, uh, patients aren't being properly uh, quarantined who are testing positive. And so that's when I instructed our Board of Health to reach back out to get an update about the situation. And we didn't hear back on Saturday. And so that led me on Sunday to reach out directly to the superintendent at the time uh, to get an understanding of uh, the situation. And, and so it was in that conversation on Sunday evening that I learned directly from then Superintendent Walsh that there had been eight deaths between Wednesday and Sunday. And 
as, as I said before, we were, we were just completely shocked to hear that that had happened in such a short amount of time without any notification to our local board of health. And then to come find, come to find out without notification to the appropriate state agencies as well. And, and in that call, not hearing a sense of urgency as to what was actually happening or a sense of urgency moving forward to save more lives. And we've now seen that number climb from eight to 15 um, in a matter of days. And so I, you know, I got off the phone with the superintendent and reached directly out to the Baker administration, Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito, and I was quickly on the phone with the, with the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who promised that they would respond as swiftly as possible. And that has led to some of the actions taking place over the last few days. I want to return to the actions taking place, uh, Mayor Morris, but what was Walsh's explanation in that Sunday night phone conversation initiated by you as to why there had been no public reporting, no reporting to the mayor, We'll get to whether or not he reported anything to the state. What was his uh, rationale, his explanation? Well, number one, basically what the response was included that every patient, every resident that had passed away had had an underlying health condition, as if that was some sort of yeah. explanation for the outbreak of coronavirus at the at the facility. And when we, we pressed him for additional information as to the breakdown in communication between the facility and the Board of Health, we were told that he would check with his team and, and get back to us. But I, the thing I don't um, understand, I'm sorry to interrupt, I, I don't understand, assuming he was telling the truth about the underlying conditions, what does that have to do with public disclosure of what's going on, even if he's right? Exactly. And, you know, number one, we were upset about what had happened. But number two, we were pressing uh, the facility and, and him in particular after their communications plan. And why haven't the, the residents, the families, the city, the public been notified as to what is happening here? If there had been eight deaths between Wednesday and today and and, and my office, the public doesn't know that. I mean, and that's when we told the superintendent that, you know, if please tell us your plan to make this public um uh, knowledge, um, or, or we're going to do it for you. And, and that's when they looped in the um, their communications person and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs for a follow-up conversation. And uh, we went from there. So in the, in the Globe today, uh, he's interviewed, uh, Mr. Walsh is interviewed, and he talks about how he called every family of every veteran uh, after he learned on March 21st that a veteran had tested positive. And then he says, quote, thereafter, although it doesn't say when, uh, thereafter, we provided regular updates to state officials about the number of tests and the results of the testing. Um, so, but we don't know what thereafter means. Was this after you talked to him, or was it right after the March twenty first thing? Or we just don't know. I honestly don't know, and I, I would defer to state officials that that he is referring to um, in that statement. And so. You know, he reports to the state, and if, if he's saying there had been communication between him and the state, then I, I defer to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Baker administration to, to answer that question. I want to stay on that for a minute. Again, this is some uh, reporting by Brian McQuarrie and Matt Stout in uh, the uh, Boston Globe. And it was a statement put out by uh, Walsh, which, as you know, Marjorie, always concerns me when someone in the middle of something like that doesn't actually talk to a reporter but rather issues a mm-hmm. statement unilaterally says something to me. I want to go back to these dates, though, that Marjorie mentioned. He said he was first notified March 21st that a veteran had tested positive for COVID-19. The next day, the 22nd, 
My staff called the family of every veteran in the soldier's home to inform them that a veteran had tested positive for the coronavirus. Again, that's the 22nd. That is six days before you got this anonymous tip. And when Marjorie, when he says thereafter, I mean, he wrote it, thereafter means to me after. common usage immediately after I notified the families. So uh, mm-hmm. assuming if we take what his representations are for the moment, he started giving updates to the state, he says, on the 22nd, again, six days before you got this anonymous tip, seven days before uh, you spoke to him. The conversation. Yep. Secretary of Veterans Affairs in the same Globe article, apparently on the 26th, on a Thursday, to quote the Globe, uh, described a relatively pedestrian spread of the disease at the soldiers' home in Holyoke and Chelsea. So just using common sense, either Bennett Walsh is lying about having reached out to state and giving them daily updates, or the Secretary of Veterans Affairs did not fully disclose or disclose at all. One of them is not telling the truth. I mean, that that if the Globe reporting is accurate, that is a fact. Is it not, Mr. Mayor? Yes, um, I agree with that assessment. And, and I think it's incumbent upon this investigation and the Baker administration to um, get to the bottom of this. Um, both Walsh and uh, Odenia, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, are, are both appointees of, of the governor. And uh, I think it's his responsibility to um, to figure out uh, what went wrong. We're talking to Alex Moore. He's the mayor of Holyoke about the deaths of now 15 residents at the Holyoke uh, Soldiers' Home. And uh, We should make clear that he doesn't oversee. This is while it's not. in his city. It is right. not Mayor Morse's. Uh, he doesn't. It's not his responsibility. It's just in his town. But I don't want to read too much into what you're saying, um, Mayor Morse, but it sounds a little bit like your initial conversations with the Superintendent Walsh and even later with the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, his statements, there seemed to be almost a misunderstanding of the seriousness of the problem. A misunderstanding of the seriousness of the problem, a lack of urgency and a... um, an air of defensiveness, um, absolutely. And so, as the governor admitted in his briefing two days ago, the first that him and the lieutenant governor and the secretary of health and human services became aware of this was uh, when I initiated contact on on Sunday night. And so, there's clearly some issues of communication when it comes to uh, the soldiers' home and the respective state agencies. I obviously can't answer to the question of um, how much Secretary Odenia knew and when and why there was a communication to um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. I will let them speak to that. But but again, uh, I was not satisfied with the conversations I had with the superintendent and the veteran secretary on Sunday night. And again, that's what led me to reach out immediately to the lieutenant governor to get answers. Um, and um, I've made it very clear that, again, this is a, a state facility. Yes, it's 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 not operated um, or... or um, looked at by the city directly, but it's, it's in Holyoke. It's, it's in my city. And when we have residents that live there, that work there, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that lives are saved and people are healthy and and, um, and focused on that mission right now. You know, earlier reporting by The Globe talked about staff members being upset that infect people that were infected with the virus were placed with veterans that were not infected uh, mm-hmm. with the virus. And there's also reporting that we have multiple people, one number, 25 uh, veterans up there or staff people still awaiting uh, results from tests. So this is pretty widespread at this point. Yes, I think right now, you know, I'm optimistic that the the foot action uh, on behalf of the state will um, 
in my view, saved lives in the next few days and the next few weeks. But I have been honest about the fact that things are likely to get worse before they get better. Uh, they already have since Sunday. And I think it's important when my office is getting outreach still today from families and community members seeking information about their loved ones. Um, I mean, that, I mean, it's just heartbreaking reaching, uh, you know, reaching out to families who are still awaiting information and are having difficulty getting in touch and learning the status of a family member. Um, you know, and I want to thank the staff there, um, no fault of their own are doing the best they can with, uh, with at the time limited support and limited PPE. Um, and I think those changes have been, have been uh, put in place. But, you know, what we also saw in the statement from the former superintendent was a, a complaint about the, the delay in, in getting test results back. But there are clear protocols and procedures when someone is suspected of being positive for COVID-19 and making sure that they're properly quarantined and isolated from those patients that aren't exhibiting symptoms or who, who haven't been tested. And, I, and, I, and so I, I hope that the investigation will will uncover those details. And I also wanna make sure that the investigation is, is one where every employee and participant in person feels like they can fully uh, participate honestly without any fear of retaliation or repercussions because there was clearly a, a toxic workplace where people didn't feel comfortable even asking for PPE, uh, didn't feel comfortable reaching out to me without the fear of uh, retaliation. And so, you know, I want the people of Holyoke to know and employees there uh, that, you know, we have your back and we're going to make sure that we hold the state accountable to making sure that this facility is providing the best care possible. Even though, Ms. Mr. Mayor, the many employees have been complaining, not just during the coronavirus outbreak, but from my understanding for years about staff shortages at the soldier's home, have they not? Mm. Yes. I mean, it's been an ongoing conversation for, for years. Um, you know, the soldier's home has for years been a, you know, a beacon of, of light in our community and, and in our Commonwealth. There have been struggles over the years to, to keep it open uh, with limited state resources. Um, and, you know, we've continued to advocate for, um, you know, the persistence of the facility. It obviously provides a, a great service to our veterans, uh, but we want to make sure it actually lives up to its ideals and its mission. Um, and uh, so moving forward, our focus is on partnering with the state to make sure that it, it does what its mission uh, spells out to do and making sure we have proper leadership and management there uh, to fulfill that promise to our veterans. Uh, we're talking to Alex Morse, who's the mayor of Holyoke, and we're obviously talking about the 15 deaths and beyond. You mentioned the staff a couple of times, Mayor Morse, but uh, uh, I'm curious to know on several levels. One, the remaining patients, how are they doing? Two, how are the staff do doing? And by the way, one of the incredible ironies of politics, which I'm sure you appreciate but our audience may not, uh, Mayor Morse is also uh, challenging the incumbent congressman from the 1st Congressional District. We'll discuss that at a future time when it's appropriate, Richie Neal. But we read this morning that Congressman Neal's uncle is actually a resident of the uh, soldier's home as well. How is the staff doing? How are the remaining patients doing after these 15 people died? Uh, to be honest, I'm still waiting for a lot of that information. Uh, there was a pledge from the administration that every resident and employee would be tested. And we got some feedback from employees directly that, that that hasn't been the case yet for employees at least, but it seems like they focus first on testing residents and are waiting for results. And now they are, um, they're, not, they're now testing uh, employees that work there um, as they come in for their shifts. And so that's what I've been told is happening. I've been promised by the state that we'll have a weekly call with an update. And uh, I know the state said in, on top of their daily briefing from NEMA, they would add a specific section on the situation at the Soldier's Home to give the public 
um, a sense of what's happening there as well. But um, I don't know the specifics or particulars as to how they're, they're, they're treating the, the current patients that are positive. Um, I would defer again to the secretary and to the acting superintendent. And we should just repeat what we said earlier, that the uh, governor has hired uh, Mark Perlstein. Apparently, he's a former federal prosecutor to oversee a private in in investigation into what exactly uh, has been going on up there. Mayor Morris, we thank you very much, thank for, you much taking for your the time. time to be with us. Much appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Thank okay. you for shining a light on the story. Alex Morse is the mayor of Holyoke. As Jim just said, he's also a candidate for Congress in Massachusetts' 1st Congressional District. Again, Mayor Morse, thank you very much for joining us. Up next, waiting to expire. As soon as the nation reaches peak deaths, the coronavirus outbreak will start to taper off. We're asking you, does it feel a bit grim that we are, in effect, looking forward to so much carnage so that we can get over this? You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. You know, most of the nation is sitting at home, living in isolation, nowhere to go, just waiting for the coronavirus to run out of fuel, hoping that the Grim Reaper doesn't come knocking on their door. And yet, in a weird way, we're morbidly waiting for him to get the job done and have it over with. Modeling out of the University of Washington, and this is the modeling that the White House is uh, relying upon, predicts we'll reach peak death toll in America in mid-April with 93,000 people losing their lives. 2,400 of them will be from Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, following that, things will start to taper off. And by the way, that 94,000, 93,000 number is by early August. We're opening the lines and asking, this is a weird question, is there something ghoulish and perverse that this is what we're waiting for, essentially to reach a peak death toll? And as I was saying to Chuck Todd a few minutes ago, there's a, I guess a a positive side to it, too, is if you look at this website, and we'll give it to you in a minute where the model comes from, and they break it down state by state, after early May, the death tolls start tapering off to virtually nothing. And is that not the finite date that we have all been waiting for? The number is 877-301-897. Let me just tell you, uh, for the states that are can listen to our show, not online, and obviously people listening online elsewhere. The peak date in Massachusetts is uh, April 17th. 100 people will die on that day. Uh, the total by early August, almost 2,400. In Maine, the peak date is April 15th. 12 people will die on that day. More than 300 will die by early August. New Hampshire, also April 15th. 11 die on that peak day. 331 overall by early August, and in Rhode Island, 168 uh, people, a uh, 16th, I'm sorry, 16th is the uh, peak date, eight die on that day, 259 overall. And by the way, I interviewed one of the researchers last night on television, Ali Mokdad, who was spectacular. What they do is they assess four social distancing issues, uh, closing schools, uh, closing non-essential businesses, limiting travel, and uh, I left staying one at out. Home. And staying at home, yeah. And based upon an evaluation of that and your local conditions, they draw a conclusion. Let me just tell you the website because I, I think this is about as important data as we've seen. It's covid19.healthdata.org. I'll tell you in a couple of minutes again. But am I expressing this well? Is as upsetting as it is that so many of our neighbors are going to lose their lives locally and across the country? When you look at these graphs, assuming this model is accurate. If we socially distance, and it, it relies on this till the end of May is what they presume, uh, that 
in virtually every single state, some dates a little later than others, by early to mid-May, the deaths will taper to almost nothing. doesn't mean you can go out the next day, but it does mean you can breathe again. And finally, instead of these answers, we don't know when it's going to be over, if people take the guidance seriously, we finally have at least a finite range of time after which, again, as I say, we can breathe a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that that um, the fact that you can maybe look forward to May and when it's the weather's getting warmer and you can go outside and not be so afraid. Of well, still social step. distancing, as I say. Yeah, you can still social distance, but you can go sit outside in your driveway. You can sit outside in the front of your house or the steps or if you have a porch. You know what I mean? It, it just gives you more of a sense of thing. There's an light at the end of the tunnel. That's exactly. That's a, and that's how I saw this thing. I mean, everybody's been focusing on the death numbers. And by the way, they're horrible. And it is horrible to even think about it. But it is real. There are 5,000 plus deaths already. This model is deeply respected, respected enough that essentially it caused Donald Trump to totally change his position. And by the way, the guy out on television last night is the guy who called Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who was an outlier. It was only after talking to the guy who put this model together that DeSantis finally started acting almost like a grown-up and told people to uh, stay at home. So, You know what I'm worried about, though? What's that? Well, I'm worried about the way this will all be interpreted down the road. What does that mean? Well, the big cities are the places that were hardest hit, the uh, urban areas that are full of uh, immigrants, full of minorities. So what does that mean, the interpretation? What does that mean? It means that further, like if you are kind of one of those white supremacist nuts, you're saying, hey – you know, out here in Mont- Montana and Wyoming, you know, where we rural areas where it's all white people, we, we did great. We yeah. did great. We didn't need all this uh, shutting down. We didn't well, need I'm all this. Well, focused on survival, down. and we can worry about the politics later. Well, Maybe think, you're right. I think that that sadly could be the way this ends up being interpreted. David Newton, you're next or first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hey, guys. Uh, so we're relying on a lot of modeling right now, yep. and modeling is an inexact science. So who's checking the modelers? Well, Fauci. Fauci. Check politicians on fact check. No, excuse me one second, Jim. We check politicians all the time on fact checking things. Has anyone looked at the models that were produced, say, two weeks ago or three weeks ago or four weeks ago? Obviously, without as much data as we have now. But who's been the closest? Who's done the best? And, And so I know we're trusting this University of Washington thing, but I've heard different numbers from them, too. Two different days. One day it was two hundred thousand, the next day it was fifty thousand, and then, then it's another number. So I know that the numbers change because they get more data. But who's been the most accurate in this? Well, I can't answer that question, but I can respond to part of what you said. The numbers change every day because they change every day. And, in fact, if you go to this website, Dave and others, you will see that every day they do update the data, both on the United States as a whole and every single state. And, by the way, they have information on how many hospital beds they believe will be needed at the peak in each state, how many hospital beds are available, ICUs, ventilators, all that sort of stuff. But I guess where I'd fall on this, Dave, because I don't have any expertise in deciding what's the most reliable model. The fact that uh, Burks and Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci are relying on this, number one. Number two, that the denier in chief finally started talking seriously two days ago based on this model. And the fact that the Florida governor, who was also in denial, ordered a stay at home thing yesterday after having spoken to one of the people would suggest that people in power on the right and the left consider this to be the most reliable one. It's imprecise, as you say. That is absolutely right. Uh, But I would argue it's the best we have. We shall see if they prove to be right. But, Dave, thank you 
much for the call. Dave makes a very good point. It is modeling. You, you don't obviously you don't know. There are tons of variables. They take those variables into account every single day. The positive part of this, I should say, is that between mid-April in places like Massachusetts, well, actually a little bit earlier in places like New York, yep. New England, mid-April, late April in California, the peaks are reached, and what peaks mean is it starts going down after if people take seriously these guidelines from the feds and, much more importantly, the more stringent guidelines by the states. Uh, let's go to Barb in the car. Hi, Barb. Hello, Barb. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm in agreement with you, Jim. I just think that the way of characterizing this as waiting for a number of deaths is offensive, it irresponsible. Is. You know, I just hate that we have to think about that. I mean, we don't have to think about it that way. But, you know, wouldn't it be great to think about that's the peak of the cases detected because we have good testing? And then we can look forward to a day when people get well and get to be able to be out and about again. Barbara, I agree with every word. And we thought long and hard before uh, presenting this the way we did. And I think one of the reasons we did is because there have been too many people on the margins who are not taking these uh, directives seriously. And the more I've learned, and I'm assuming the more you've learned, uh, is the more we do take them seriously, the fewer uh, infections and the fewer deaths there are. So I guess our feeling was maybe it will help scare some people straight, but I I take your point seriously. I'm the one who said it. I think we do feel grim about this, but unfortunately, Barb, it's, it's the reality Right, you know, there are 5,148 deaths already, already. And again, we're still two weeks away. But I, I totally respect your point of view, Barb, and it's it's really hard to talk about them. In that, I mean, how about when the president the other day, thanks for the call, said if we're under 200,000, that'll be, we'll consider it to have been a good job. I mean, it, you know, maybe in, you know, in, a, in an academic setting, you could put it that way, but I don't think that was the appropriate way to present uh, – 200,000 potential deaths. And by the way, that's the range. If you're getting confused, why did I mention 94,000 deaths in this model? Well, it's because if you don't adhere to some of the social distancing issues that I outlined a couple of minutes ago, the model says there could be twice as many deaths. Let's go to Cynthia calling from Maine. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, this is uh, Cynthia, the train lady. We talked a few months ago. Oh, hello, Cynthia. Hello, hello. Um, I'm sorry. We have to have such a, you know, a, a sad conversation, but um, I agree. I've been uh, following the data coming out of the University of Washington, and I, you know, I understand and agree with all the models, but my my psychological approach is a little bit different. Um, for me, the the great number of deaths is, is tragic, and, and it's upsetting, um, but in terms of, you know, when I'll allow myself to sort of enter society, I'm really focusing on contagion. I'm focusing on when the cases, um, when people, uh, you know, acquire coronavirus or become contagious, that's what I'm focusing on, those numbers. Um, you know, when the cases start to, you know, disappear and die away and lessen, that's when I think I'll feel, you know, more comfortable about, you know, being around people in larger and larger groups. So we, those are the numbers that I'm going to really kind of... You know, on. Cynthia, I wonder about that all the time. What, what, is, what are things going to be like um, in August or what, assuming that, right. that, that, you know, do you, do you go sit at a bar, you know, with a bunch right. of strangers? Fauci was go, asked that question yesterday. Yeah, do you go to the Red Sox games? Well, his, his position, exa- that question was asked by a young reporter almost exactly that. <laughs> Can we go to sporting events, et cetera? And he sort of, 
I wouldn't say avoided, but said he's suggesting that that uh, social distancing is going to remain important for a long time. I guess what I was saying, Cynthia, is I was dividing this between reentering normalcy. I have no idea when that's going to come, but I'm going to feel a lot better even social distancing when my neighbors aren't at risk of dying anymore. And that appears to be assuming we follow the rules relatively responsibly in most of America, that's going to happen in mid-May. Again, it doesn't mean you go to bars and restaurants and uh, baseball games at that time, but it does mean, again, as I said, you can breathe a little easier. Cynthia, thanks. If it's going to be a a new world in which we don't go to those restaurants where you're so packed in that you can't even stand up to get out of the table, you know, sometimes you go to some of those restaurants where you you feel like if you're but it's going to hit the table of the person next to you, whether that's going to no, be No, that is going to change. I'll tell you, give me give you an example. One of our favorite places is Myers and Chang. Yes. And before they decided to close, Christopher Myers and Joanne Chang decided to close both Myers and Chang and I think Nine Flowers. You know that at Myers and Chang, when they were still open before it was on, the, the governor announced delivery and takeout only, they had removed, and like a lot of restaurants, 50% of their tables for exactly that reason. Uh, uh, so that there would be more space and more social distancing. So I'm guessing, and I'm surely not a futurist, is even when we return to relative normal, don't you think that's going to be the case? As we were discussing yesterday, fewer people are going to be riding mass transit, which is an unfortunate reality. Uh, uh, There are going to be a lot of changes, at least in the short run and probably the medium run as well. Max in Cambridge, hi. Uh, I actually want to talk about that point. Um, yep. You know, crime, violence, loan sharking, it's all a function of uh, financial hardship. Mm-hmm. And to follow on what a guy was asking yesterday, I mean, who's modeling when do we and how do we start economic activity to uh, to stop this? Because I think when all is said and done, the amount of deaths um, that come from this economic hardship will dwarf what we're seeing in the uh, virus. Well, the one uh, correct thing where I agree with the president, even though I don't uh, uh, agree with his solution, at least what was his solution, this Easter thing, is we can't let the cure be worse than the disease. There's a point after which there's got to be a cost-benefit analysis uh, where people decide that we do have to be able to feed our families and live and not be in colossal anxiety about our financial travails, $1,200, uh, you know, be damned. I mean, it's truly not enough to allow people to survive. But Max, that's a great point. And that is that is going to be the big debate yeah. is when is it safe to open up? And people like, I think the question is, there is going to continue to be some risk. There's no doubt. But when is the risk tamped down enough that it's worth taking to be able to return to a relatively safe and relatively healthy uh, economy. Bob in Plymouth, we have literally 30 seconds. Shoot. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. Hi. Hey, um, you're talking about are we waiting for the worst point scenario? Yeah. Um, we've been living this for three years since Trump was elected. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I got a quick update for you. I told you my daughter's an EMT in Virginia. Oh, she yes, no yes, yes. And? Yeah. Um, she's got like three of them now that she has to sanitize and reuse. Well, you know, we oh, talked to somebody gosh. yesterday. I don't know if it was a nurse or somebody who said the same thing. Who was the pre- Bob? Thanks for the call. And we're glad she has something. Now, it wasn't the woman who called. Oh, it was a nurse who talked yeah. about how you had to put the surgical mask that you wear all day over the N95 and then remove it and whatever. And essentially, she says the N95, they're wearing, what did she say? Into infinity, I think was yes. sadly what she had to say. By the way, let me give the website again. If you want to follow what's going on in each state, as morbid as it is, 
COVID19.healthdata.org. That's the model. The other side is not so morbid. The other side is when it gets better. I agree. That is the upside. Anyway, coming up, we're going to talk to Andrew Cabral. She joins us for this week's edition of Law & Order. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, we know the problem and we know the goal. Get more people tested, flatten the curve. Though we've not faced a pandemic like this in 100 years, Massachusetts may be better prepared than some might think. At least that's what Gary Gottlieb, the former CEO of Partners Health, thinks. In a recent op-ed, Gottlieb outlined how Massachusetts has the means to create a world-class response to the novel coronavirus. It just needs to be executed properly. We'll talk to him in a few minutes. We'll take Governor Baker's press conference live at 1 o'clock. Then, you've heard of Jagger and Richards, McCartney and Lennon. Well, how about Vanderoe and Farnsworth? Today, the Farnsworth House in Illinois is a national landmark and a celebrated part of America's architecture. But to get there, architect Mies Vanderoe had to survive bad romance, a red scare, and alcoholism. In a new book, BPR contributor Alex Bean tells the whole story. He'll join us on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. So joining us online for this week's edition of Law & Order is Andrea Cabral. Andrea is the former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety, and she is now the CEO of Ascend. Hello there, Andrea Cabral. Hello there, Jim and Marjorie. How are you both? Well, how are you? I'm, I'm, a, I'm fine. Good. Every day that I, that I uh, you know, feel good and, you know, don't have symptoms of anything, I am very grateful. I know. Like, to me too. My neck hurt yesterday. I was a little panicked for a while, but then today I'm better. So. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I, and since Everything. you brought it up, I wasn't going to say I had a headache yesterday, which I almost never have. And I, like everybody else on the planet, I'm sure you have a headache, which yeah. is not one of the symptoms That's right. listed. But right you away. say to yourself, you're a minute away. In yeah. any case, I'm glad you're well. Absolutely. You run for the thermometer. You yeah, start exactly. checking everything. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Andrew Cabral, um, I suppose there's always a moment to talk about guns, even when we're in the midst of a terrible uh, pandemic. Apparently, uh, Two million guns were sold in the United States as fears of this virus spread, and there's been a controversy about whether gun stores are essential. Uh, the, the federal government under President Trump thinks they are. Um, Charlie Baker uh, thought they were, but then he changed his mind and says they're not essential, although some gun stores are still open. I want to just want to amend that to say two million guns in March in one month, not two million guns. Two million, two million guns, guns in guns. one yeah, March. Yeah, people got hysterical about this. So what do, you, uh, what do you make of that, Andrea? Well, I mean, it shouldn't surprise anyone that, that uh, Trump deemed them essential. He's, he, you know, that is, that's no different than every other thing he does to throw red meat to his base. I mean, that's, that's really, he, doesn't, he has no belief system. It's just a way to get people to, uh, to vote for him. So it shouldn't surprise anybody that he did that. I think originally, um, I think so the, the, there have been 
sort of three versions, I think, of this essential services order from the governor. There was the original one, which uh, issued on the 23rd of March, um, and that did not make any reference to gun manufacturers, vendors, um, distributors, importers, uh, what have you. And then I think in the updated list that just this past Tuesday that was that came out earlier in the day, I think guns were included in all of those categories. And then, I, and then if I'm reading this correctly and getting the sequence right, the later in the day, the reference to gun sellers um, and gun ranges was removed. So there was sort of a initial order, uh, an amended order that added essential services, and then a redaction to the uh, certain aspects of the reference to uh, gun firearms um, outlets uh, and shooting ranges that was deleted, and so yeah, I mean, I think I, don't, I think it's a hard argument to make, quite frankly. I mean, certainly, if you're looking at it in terms of jobs, there's a Smith and Wesson factory out in Springfield. Um, that actually apparently continued to operate even though it wasn't deemed an essential service after the first order uh, on the 23rd. It stayed open, and they recently had someone test positive for the coronavirus. Um, I believe that happened while it was open, and it shouldn't have been. But, um, you know, there's the aspect of looking at manufacturers in terms of jobs, but the issue of whether or not what's being manufactured is essential is a separate question. And there usually has to be a tie to some essential service that makes the business, the underlying business itself, essential. Um, I just, you know, my position is I just don't, just don't think that we were going to run out of guns between the 23rd of March and May 4th. Well, by the way, it wasn't just running out of guns. It was running out of gun practice because shooting, shooting ranges, ranges were also that was the one that on the killed me. Shooting ranges. It, well, what was on the essential list? This is not publicized. There was some good reporting by Boston.com and the Statehouse News Service and elsewhere. Even though it wasn't in the governor's press release, the early Tuesday thing, nor directly mentioned by the governor, uh, on the website, one of the categories of essential services included workers supporting the operation of firearm or ammunition product manufacturers, importers and distributors, plus gun retailers and shooting ranges. I just want to say, and by the way, as you said, it disappeared also quietly later that day. You know, while you were criticizing Donald Trump and saying it was not surprising that he would have that on his essential list, by the way, and his list is not it's not a mandate to the states. Every state can do what they wanted. This Boston.com piece Connecticut, Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island also have listed gun shops as essential. And as all three of us know, there's some really fine governors in some of those states. So uh, the pressure on the president from his supporters apparently is pressure on some Republican and Democratic governors right here in New England, no? Yes, I I completely agree with that. But I think that to the extent that any governor makes a decision that is political in nature, you have to justify that. I agree. If you're talking about keeping some businesses open and others closed based on, um, you know, safe distancing and want, not wanting people to, um, you know, be going to these businesses and to be out in the street and out and about and keeping them closed, you know, that, you know, I, I get that. I completely understand that. 
But I don't understand how um, gun manufacturers or gun retailers or shooting rangers fall into that category. And quite frankly, there are sheriff's offices, uh, Suffolk being one of them, that have their own um, shooting ranges. So if there were some sort of emergency where someone had to, you know, um, take their test over again or take their test to renew, um, you could you could probably find one that is operated by a sheriff's office versus having to go to a commercial range. And there are academies there, are, you know, that have their own shooting ranges. So you know that clearly opening the shoot, you know, having the shooting ranges open is an open to the public sort of thing. Um, and that and why you would want people to have greater access to guns at a time when they are being forced to be in one another's company is also a question for me. I mean, people, you know, uh, the, the idea that, I mean, we know domestic violence spikes in situations like this, and it has. Actually, yeah, there's some yeah. data around that. Um, but I, I don't think an increased access to guns during a pandemic is a very good idea. Can I add one last thing to how Marjorie opened this segment? She's mentioning that the 2 million guns sold in uh, March. This is a New York Times analysis of federal data. It was the second busiest, busiest month ever of gun sales. And the only month that trailed, we've talked about this too, was January of 2013, which was just after President Barack Obama's reelection and the mass shooting at uh, Sandy Hook. Second busiest gun sale month ever. And can I just ask, why isn't this, why is this, I mean, it's deadlier, obviously, because you can't, at least you arguably can't kill someone with a roll of toilet paper. But we always say things like, don't hoard toilet paper. Don't buy, you know, a bunch of masks and keep them in your garage for yourself. Why would you want people to hoard guns? I just, it, it just boggles my mind. You know, or, you know uh, people who have them are more likely to use them in a panic. I, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting in some of these cases with these shootings, uh, these mass shootings, when the police make arrests, they go back to the home of the person and they found like arsenals in some of these cases. People have, don't they have some, uh, I don't want to quote it because I, I won't get it right, but I know that there are there is a small number of people that own massive amounts of, of guns. Um, yeah. Which is, it's not just one gun or two guns, but like, Two dozen guns. But wait a second. Am I not right? I mean, your former boss, when you were Secretary of Public Safety, Deval Patrick, was pretty tough on gun issues. And if I recall correctly, and please correct me, Andrew Cabral, if I'm wrong, one of the measures that the governor proposed that actually couldn't even make it through the legislature, if I'm right, right. was limiting gun purchases to one a month. And when he came out with it... Marjorie and I on the radio were so incredulous saying that's the best he can do. But then we realized the reason it was as moderate as it was is it couldn't even pass the all-democratic legislature on Beacon Hill. That is correct, is it not, Andrea? Yes. No, that's absolutely correct. We've actually fought um, uh, very hard for that. And um, it was was being done also in the context of – Sort of the men, the the relationship between gun purchases, background checks, and, and a history of mental illness. Mm-hmm. So there was it was a larger bill that involved uh, finding out if if a person had a history of um, a mental illness or have of having been committed and so on and so forth. And and within that had a lot of different moving parts, but within that was limiting gun purchases. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it was very surprising the pushback on that. Um, 
Andrew Cabral, this is another surprising decision, too. There's been a lot of concern about uh, people that are held in small places, whether it's in prisons, which we'll get to, or these family detention centers where we've been leaving um, a lot of uh, migrant families. This U.S. district judge in Washington, D.C., um, uh, delayed, basically, this request to release migrants in these three family detention centers. People are obviously concerned about the spread of coronavirus and said that they can come back April 6th. Uh, the government has to come back April 6th and give them answers about living conditions and people being spread apart and so forth. But my goodness, um, this story was March 30th. In another week, it could be like a disaster. You get 1,350 people children, men and women, held in these three centers um, in Pennsylvania and Texas. The yeah, delay is, seems odd. Yeah, the judge is James, I think his last name is pronounced Bosberg, yeah. uh, and he's uh, in the D.C. circuit. Yes, I had the same reaction you did, that, you know, a week is, you know, equivalent to a year in pandemic time. And it's I, all I can glean from it is that he... W- wanted to give ICE the opportunity to come up with um, a plan to do this, right? So they're supposed to report back on their efforts to release, which I read to be you should have some numbers on who you've released, but you also should have uh, – you should be able to show me the mechanism by which you're doing this, how you're making your choices, and who you're releasing. Because the one thing that I noticed in the article that was absent um, was – any sort of a breakdown in the facilities that are mentioned, and they mentioned um, three uh, in Pennsylvania and Texas, as to how many people are just being detained because they were seeking, lawfully seeking political asylum. I mean, those should be the first people out the door. I mean, I think the majority of people that we're holding at this point are not people who have crossed the border, um, uh, you know, illegally, but people who were seeking asylum or some other legal uh, means of either getting into or remaining in the country that are being held for deportation. I mean, the, the idea that we would hold people in conditions we've already seen too many pictures of to dispute that these are, even if there weren't a pandemic, these are terrible conditions by and large for people to be held. And the fact that there is this highly infectious disease and people are still being held and ICE has to be ordered to do it, that's what makes made me think he should have just ordered them to do it. And I'm not sure why he didn't, except for perhaps wanting to give them the chance to come up with some sort of plan that they can continue to follow for all of their uh, facilities. But I, you know, I think that's sort of putting hope where hope isn't necessarily warranted, um, but what could happen in a week should, should scare yeah. him to death. Well, this judge in, in Los Angeles did the same thing involving 6,900 detained children, uh, gave them at least a week to get their act together. So you, you shudder to think what could happen in those close quarters. At least quarters. Boesberg included parents, mm-hmm. which, which was good. Yeah. Um, he said, you know, he expanded it past the L.A. judge's order to uh, include the release of parents because, you know, releasing a bunch of children, yeah, that's a great point. parentless children, is a, is, is, is a bad idea as well. But release should be happening now. I mean, that's, you know, especially for people who, uh, who you know, for whom the, either the illegality is non-existent because they were presenting themselves lawfully for asylum or it's, it's de minimis. People overstaying their visas should not pay for that with their lives.
You know, uh, I haven't been in a courtroom in a long time, except as a defendant, as Marjorie knows, right. a few years ago, which we'll Jim leave was the for, great white defendant. We'll leave that. Well, I was, as a matter of fact. Court. We'll leave that for uh, another day. <laughs> but, you know, sort of analogous to what Marjorie was complaining about virtually every single day during impeachment. Why can't a federal court make a decision on a subpoena like today or tomorrow? If the judge in a case like this where lives are at risk, including of exactly. kids. Exactly, yeah. Uh, ask for a report of something the government should, even though it probably doesn't, have information on, why is it even a week? Why is it not? Gentlemen and ladies, we'll see you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, Andrea Cabral. I totally agree with that. I think you can say you have until tomorrow uh, at 9 or whenever court convenes, um, or even give them until after the lunch break if you must. Mm -hmm. But you will come back here with a plan. And you're going to tell me the following things. You're going to tell me what the nature of the custody is. For you know, how many people fall into the following groups? How many children do you have? How many people uh, under 30, over 30, over 60? He could have, you know, you could do a complete. You could you can send them a roadmap and say, I want all of these questions answered, and I want you to tell me mm -hmm. how you are going to prioritize the release of these people um, based on the risks you know are present in these facilities, and put it on them. And I if agree. they don't do it, you hold them in contempt and you order everybody out and, you know, they'll scramble. We're talking to Andrew Cabral. You know, Andrew Cabral, um, we've talked many times with you about Rikers Island and the terrible conditions there and what a horrible prison it is. Um, so I'm reading this story about how uh, prisoners there are being offered a protective equipment, six bucks an hour to dig massive graves on this hard island. And I'm dying to know what you yeah. think about because on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, I don't want to be – ordering, digging mass graves, even if it's uh, up in my hourly pay. On the other hand, if I get out of Rikers Island and be out some island in the middle of the water somewhere for a few hours, I think I'd prefer digging the graves. You mean for personal well, safety reasons? Yes. Yeah. Well, just to get out of there. Yeah. The, this prison sounds so horrific and dangerous. And so I don't well, know. Am I wrong? Struck by a couple of things. Um, struck by the fact that, and I did not know this, that when it's when there's no pandemic, yeah, they are burying twenty to twenty-five people uh, a, a week. I thought they said. <laughs> Wait a minute, let me just check. They are that. burying people yeah. in the non-pandemic. You're absolutely right. Yeah, but they're burying lots. The number, the number just struck me. But the second thing, you know, that I thought was, why are these burials and not cremations, where no one has to be exposed to anything? And if they're being buried at this plot, one would assume that. You know, a, a, a funeral in the, you know, the, the sort of graveside service for that person is not being held because it's on prison property. The body is not being, you know, sent back to the family for burial. There must be a reason for that. Perhaps the person has no family or no one that is willing to claim them. Yeah. And in that case, why aren't you cremating as a far more sanitary um, measure with far less risk to anybody? You know, I, I don't understand why it's a burial. I don't know either. I don't think the story addresses that. And I don't no, know. No, it doesn't what... address cremation at all, but why isn't it cremation? Well, I mean, is why that... isn't anybody thinking about that? Is why that. Are you literally. It makes no sense. Is that um, usual? I don't know what prisons do with people that have no family. And I don't know. Do, do they cremate or do they bury? Apparently, this one buries. I mean, do no, other people cremate? I think cremate? it does, but there's a pandemic. Yeah. So why wouldn't you. Um, as the superintendent of that facility, go to the mayor and say, "This is. We think that this is a far um, more hygienic way 
Um, and and you certainly can if you find family members, you can you can you, there are ashes for the family members to claim. But I it, I'm just struck by the fact that um, I'm always struck by the fact that we continue to use burial as a mechanism uh, when when uh, you know spaces at such a premium. But in the in the case of a pandemic, you've got to, they always give them uh, personal protection equipment. But it's it's particularly necessary now because we don't even know um, you know how many people that they're burying are are, are the deaths a result of of the coronavirus. Um, so, but beyond that, the idea that you are, you know, inmates, they say, have always done, dug these graves. Um, what tells me that it's probably coronavirus related is because the amount, $6 uh, exactly. an hour that they're getting seems to be the premium for that. Can I... um, and that's a lot to risk for a few dollars, um, which I know means a lot. In, in, and that's, what, that's sort of what led me, my mixed feelings about all of this is what led me to the idea of why aren't you cremating um, and, and these bodies and not, you know, even creating a situation where uh, inmates have to make decisions about their own personal safety for a few extra dollars a month. Can I make this discussion even more depressing than it already is just for a second? <laughs> I don't think you can, but no, I'm, I can, I'm actually. No, I know, fascinated to see you. I know I can. No, I think you'll agree also. <laughs> Some of the most heart-rending stories through this you know, wall-to-wall heart-rending time have been people who have not only died alone, but, and so you feel for that person, obviously, but whose family can't even visit them as they know they're dying. And I don't know, I've been so delirious around the clock. I don't know if I saw this on CNN or if I heard it on NPR. I think, I think I heard it on our station, but I'm not sure. There are these incredible stories of nurses who, by the way, in addition to everything else, are putting themselves at, at great health risk doing their jobs who united a a daughter, I think it was, and grandchildren on Facebook Live with their dying parent and grandparent for a final moment to connect with each other. And it was so incredibly painful and beautiful at the same time. But it's just it's it's just otherworldly. The the families have to deal with this, people who are suffering and possibly dying have to deal with it, that the healthcare professionals have to put themselves in the middle of this at great risk. It is just yep. it is just it is it's incredible. And I, I never use the word heroism. I never use it, rarely use it, but the heroism of these, some of these, health, not some, virtually all these healthcare workers is just well. The whole thing is like a, it's like a, it's like a horrible science fiction movie. You know, you read that story on the front page of the Globe today, but the thirty-one-year-old guy from know, Alabama, that Riley Rumrell, one of four brothers, and comes back from a trip to South America, and he's fine, and then you know he, he he's dead um, just a couple of days after he goes into the hospital, and he's thirty-one. It was just, I don't know. We need some, we need no, some comic it, relief, it Andrew. You got, any, you got any jokes that you can? <laughs> you can no, tell? I mean I do. I will say, you know, to Jim's point, you know, in, when you look at how spectacular, extraordinary—I mean, ordinary people can be in extraordinary yes. circumstances. I know, I know. This will go down in history, in terms of all of these healthcare providers who have to, you know, not only struggling to keep people alive, but but end up being with them sometimes the only person with them in their final moments and having to shoulder that burden in addition to the burden of losing a patient, you know, in terms of medical care, having to be sort of their last, the last person that this person sees. 
and and it really is. It is it is breathtakingly, in my view, uh, heroic. And uh, I, you know, there's no way to thank. There's no way to adequately thank people. I would love for us to just be able to give them the equipment that they could, that would protect them, and to test enough people so that their own exposure is reduced here. But there really is no way for every individual person to thank nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists and EMTs and you know, firefighters and everybody who's responding. Well, you know, you know, to these cases. You know, the last time I think we experienced this here, we're going to talk to Gary Gottlieb in a few minutes, who was running Partners Health when during the marathon uh, bombing. But it was a similar situation, and not just you know it was first responders and as you say, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, rushing to help people survive, and the incredible. I mean, the fact that not one person who didn't die on the scene died in one of the hospitals is just right. it's just it is otherworldly, and they're demonstrating it again. Andrea, it's great to talk to you as always, despite the subject matter. We'll talk again soon. Both of you be well. You, you too. too, Andrea, and hope you okay. can be more cheerful next next week. Thanks a lot. Coming up, uh, we're going to be joined by, oh, I should say what Andrew Cabral is before I leave. I'm sorry. Andrew Cabral is the CEO of Ascend. She's the former Suffolk County Sheriff and the Secretary of Public Safety. Coming up, could the COVID-19 pandemic overwhelm the state's hospital and ambulatory care? Dr. Gary Gottlieb joins us for that and more. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. At 1 o'clock today, we're going to take the governor's uh, press conference live. And by the way, just for a change of pace after the governor's press conference, we'll be joined by our regular contributor, Alex Beam, who's got a great new book called Broken Glass so that you don't all just disappear into depression. So the volume of coronavirus cases that are expected to hit Massachusetts, we talked about it earlier, healthcare system could easily overwhelm it. In order to avert an entirely new crisis, would maximizing the benefits of what I'll call creative health care delivery, including telemedicine so more people can be treated at home, be one way to guarantee care while also taking a burden off hospitals? In a recent piece for the Boston Globe, a number of physicians and hospital CEOs laid out a visionary and, they say, viable plan for how this could work. Joining us on the line is one of them, Dr. Gary Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb is a former CEO of Partners Healthcare System, former CEO of Partners in Health. We had Paul Farmer on, one of the co-founders, just the other day. Dr. Gottlieb is currently professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Doctor, it's great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Yeah, thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Gottlieb. Well, let's let's be a little hopeful here for a second. Expand on the op-ed that you and your colleagues wrote about the way that we could uh, get through this in Massachusetts. Tell people what you wrote about. Yeah, so you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, our extraordinary leaders in healthcare in the state, our physicians and nurses, managers, the CEOs of the hospitals are doing an exceptional job to try to put together the expectation of this surge and the demand that it's going to have in the system and reconfiguring the acute care system to be able to take on as much of that surge as possible. And as we've all listened to, the number of beds that are available, the number of ventilators, the number of skilled professionals who can, in fact, operate various components of inten- intensive care will absolutely be stressed by at least the way that the models suggest the demand will start to grow. 
Um, and so the question is, are there ways of moving upstream and also of unburdening the system? So we put together a plan uh, in partnership with a number of folks in industry, as well as on the care delivery side and experts um, in acute care medicine that builds on a paradigm that um, has been used in the state before, uh, was actually used uh, to focus on disabled patients who were sick in a community um, called Mobile Integrated Health. Which say, that, wait, say, that, say the term one more time. We lost you yeah, for a second there, doctor. Mobile Integrated Health. I'm Mobile sorry. Integrated Health. No, no, no. It wasn't your fault. It was a technical glitch. Take okay. it away. Yeah, That's okay. Uh, which, which builds on uh, really the talent base of people in paramedicine uh, and EMTs, trains those folks up with a lot of medical supervision, and allows a lot more care in the home. What we're adding to that uh, is bringing in uh, essentially a hub of telemedicine as well as a variety of remote monitoring and other technology to be able to essentially triage people effectively, identify from any number of referral bases, whether people use the symptom checker for buoy that the state is using at the present time, which they've excellently adapted to having, having people determine whether or not they should get further help, referrals from the community or calls from people who are concerned, have them be screened by experts um, uh, in a call center, um, and then appropriately triage, depending upon what their symptoms are, to either being worried well with a high degree of reassurance and being told that they could call back if necessary, or to needing a test because they have enough symptoms, and that test could either be provided um, in the home if necessary by an EMT or paramedic, uh, depending upon the person's mobility and the accessibility, um, uh, and then being able to uh, essentially provide appropriate support uh, with expert physicians um, available through telemedicine uh, and nursing personnel as well, um, and then incrementally having more or less visits from EMTs or paramedical folks um, to be able to help people with oxygen, with remote monitoring of EKG, of oxygenation, um, uh, as well as other critical vital signs, uh, and then aiding when people need more help with oxygen and potentially uh, some non-invasive ventilation devices that could help uh, with uh, less impaired folks to be able to potentially avoid progression to the need for hospitalization and yeah. obviously triage those folks who are more severely ill and get them to the hospital right away. You know, Dr. Gottlieb, I'm not uh, an expert healthcare person. I am an expert patient, as Marjorie knows. <laughs> I have great expertise. <laughs> when I'm reading your piece, Somewhat of a hypochondriac. it is so common sense. We have a governor who obviously comes from the healthcare industry. He has touted the buoy thing that you mentioned big time. He's talked about telemedicine. I'm assuming that we are moving under Baker's leadership. We are moving in the direction of a model in the next week or so that comes very close to what you're describing. Is that appropriate optimism or no? Uh, I think the state is giving this model serious consideration. It's already taken the step through guidance um, uh, just on the 31st, so I guess two days ago, uh, that allows uh, more folks to apply for rapid approval yeah. through, with hospitals um, for uh, medically integrated health, mobile, excuse me, mobile integrated health, so that the EMT uh, and ambulance component can start to be stepped up 
and supervised with a high degree of medical control. I think looking at the broader and more concrete proposal uh, is taking a little bit more consideration, and I think that the, certainly the administration uh, is giving it very serious thought. You know, uh, Dr., one of the things I think is scary, to, or particularly scary to people, is having trouble breathing, obviously. Um, but I've read about, and maybe this is just something I should have paid attention to because it was online and on TV, but this device that allows people to determine, you just put your finger inside it, the oxygenation levels you're at, which apparently... Right. Apparently, uh-huh. is important. Is exactly. that? A, a, tell us about that. So, I mean, basically, pulse oximetry uh, is a way in which um, we use routinely monitor people's oxygen saturation and look at levels that are associated with increasing concern in regard to people's ability to be able to breathe in a way that supports their function. Um, or if, in fact, in fact, it's clear that they're moving in a direction that's more and more difficult. So there are uh, one simple and inexpensive devices that measure pulse oximetry, and now there's integrated technology that in real time, can, in a continuous way, measure pulse oximetry, cardiogram, heart rate, temperature, and other vital signs, excuse me, and be able to transmit them um, to an app that an EMT or paramedic could see or to a central control center so that doctors and nurses would be able to look at them as if they were looking at the telemetry board or a dashboard in an ICU mm. and also have appropriate alarms so that with that 24-hour monitoring, people who are getting sicker could have immediate intervention. Um, uh, either have somebody go to their home or determine if they need to go to a hospital or if some other therapeutic choice was necessary. We're talking to Dr. Gary Gottlieb, former CEO of Partners in Health and CEO of uh, Partners in Health. Um, Dr. Gottlieb, we've been hearing a lot about this University of Washington model. That's the one that uh, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and and the president are now uh, talking about in terms of looking at how this virus is going to peak and then hopefully you know, flatten the curve, et cetera, afterwards. And, and one of the things, it was talking about how Massachusetts, I think it's April 17th, according to this model, is supposed to be the day that's supposed to be the worst for us and then things are going to get better. But one of the things I noticed is that um, they were talk- we have been talking about endlessly about hospital bed shortages and ICU bed shortages. And, and while we seem to have a pretty significant bed and ICU shortage in Massachusetts, 4,658 bed shortage, 1,179 ICU bed shortage, I was noticing California has zero bed shortages. And I wonder, what's the difference between us and California? Do you have any idea? Uh, I don't know exactly what data you're talking about in terms of the specific bed shortages. Um, Clearly, those beds are per capita in terms of uh, the various age ranges of the populations, um, as well as the expected infection rate. Um, uh, And so... uh, really measuring what the demand side is going to be and how people are going to ultimately need 24-hour monitoring and or ventilation um, is determining that. And I I can't, you know, I haven't looked at the data to to compare uh, Massachusetts uh, and uh, and California. And, and, you know, the populations are so different. The states um, have, are, are, pretty different. And it's really looking at specific geographic areas in which I think the shortages uh, are necessary to evaluate. I mean, clearly beds in 
um, in San Diego, and I can help people in the middle of California. But let me tell. Um, so I, I need I need to really see what the distributions were. By the way, the, the source of that, if people are interested at home, when we were talking to Chuck Todd earlier, this comes from this University of Washington model out of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. But let me make another comparison: in state to in state, you were head of partners uh-huh. during the marathon, uh-huh. and I think people around the world still marvel that, other than the people who sadly died on the scene that not one additional person did because of the incredible behavior of ordinary people and the incredible intervention of people who worked for you and others and things like that. Why were we so incredibly prepared for something that we didn't think was coming there and so strapped potentially for another thing that a lot of people in your business thought ultimately was coming, a pandemic? Sure. Uh, I think that uh, the demand side is somewhat different. Um, Massachusetts has six level one trauma centers uh, that are relatively proximal to one another, uh, a a very large number relative to the population. Boston does, not just Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. um, in the medical centers that are here. Um, The configuration of medical personnel who are pretty much right at the finish line Mm. with numerous ambulances um, sitting there in that circumstance uh, helped tremendously. Um, The fact that it was uh, we had done repeated large trauma um, uh, evaluation and preparation really since the time of 9-11 that has intensified and our emergency preparedness folks were remarkable. So that was an acute emergency. And it was mass trauma, which is different than chronic unacute, mm-hmm. which this is, um, uh, and therefore really doesn't anticipate the sheer number of resources that would be necessary. And frankly, you know, we still don't know what those resources are. We're modeling them. I think that Chris Murray's models at the University of Washington are superb. Um, but uh, at the same time, we're going to see what's going to move forward over the course of the coming weeks and how we'll be able to respond to this. That's the voice of Dr. Gary Godley, former CEO of Partners Health and former CEO of Partners in Health. Can we talk about that other hat of yours for a minute, the Partners in Health thing? I mentioned that Dr. Farmer sure. was with us the other day. We talked to him a lot about health disparities, and that's one of the things that you and your colleagues there have dealt with so brilliantly around the world. But can we talk about them here? Already we're hearing stories of how this this crisis has exacerbated the, the disparate uh, uh, access to health of uh, those of us who are lucky enough to have health insurance and money as compared to our poor colleagues in this community. Is this, when this is over, are we going to look back on this as just in addition to all the other horrors of it is another horrible example of how screwed poor people are when it comes to healthcare in this country? I certainly worry that that's the case. Um, uh, in this state, perhaps less than others, because we have much lower insurance rates and we have much higher um, uh, number of people who, in fact, have identifiable primary care doctors. But there are disparities in outcome in ordinary times here in this state, even in the shadow of wonderful medical facilities. Um, additionally, the poverty makes people sick. That's something Paul yeah. uh, talk about constantly. And so people who can't shelter in place without any resources, without real resources, people who are homeless. All of those elements contribute pretty substantially to a number of the risk factors that are associated with um, more morbid outcomes from disinfection and from other, uh, from other illnesses. The notion right now that federal policymakers are making care free for COVID infection 
uh, is it's fragmentary. It doesn't take into consideration all of the other health care those people need yeah. before and after um, their own vulnerability um, uh, and the access to people who can advise them easily and nurture them through a process. Um, and it will speak to the notion that building a strong healthcare system and building one that has a public health side as well is important. I think from a policy perspective, um, you know, we've built in the United States because of the way we've built it, much more of an illness system than we have built a health yeah. system. And so we've been very, very good with hyperacute stuff. Um, this is a different kind of hyperacute stuff because of the mass demand that's pretty remarkable. Um, but the system hasn't invested in primary and secondary prevention or in fixing the social determinants of health, um, which adversely impact poor people far more than almost anyone else. You know, Dr. Gary Galilee, you're a, are you a Brooklyn kid, are you not? I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up on Long Island, which people don't usually admit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you were born in... We think you're much more hip to grow up in Brooklyn, I guess, huh? <laughs> These days. But, you know... <laughs> Farm to table. Speaking of Brooklyn... <laughs> yeah, my, yeah my, my parents were from Brownsville. You know, I was born in East Flatbush. That's great. Okay. Well, yeah, the reason I brought that up is you just mentioned the feds a minute ago is somebody that obviously you knew, but most of America never heard of till several weeks ago is another Brooklyn kid, a little bit older than you, by a couple of decades, Dr. Fauci. What's your sense about how he has maneuvered and managed this crisis, uh, Dr. Gottlieb? Well, he's a breathtaking hero. I'm sure Paul told you um, how he held hands with us during the Ebola crisis. Yeah, he did. um, And what a force he was um, uh, actually in ensuring care. Um, for an afflicted member of the PIH family, um, but also his wisdom helped to advise really um, developing global policy um, together with the folks at the CDC, Dr. Friedman and others. Um, He is thoughtful, he is committed, he is all about mission, um, and he's all about truth. Um, uh, And I think, you know, to some extent, he is uh, the pillar uh, sitting in the administration, reminding all of us about the importance of science. Mm. Uh, and science <laughs> is truth. And it's truth because when it fails, it says, we failed. Let's yeah. retest this hypothesis in another way. Let's find another direction. Um, and to have his voice, to have his intellect, to have his energy in, in this battle um, is an asset that this country has that it better treasure. We're talking with uh, Dr. Gary Gottlieb, former CEO of Partners Healthcare System. Speaking of other hats, you are also a geriatric psychiatrist. So I'm wondering, um, for older people, first there were all the ones that were in the biggest trouble. Now we've had some younger people in, bi- in big trouble too. But um, you know they're not being able to see their family in many cases, their grandchildren, the isolation. What's going on with, with that? So this is a, a huge problem. First, I think that as we think about resources, like the plan that I described, it's an opportunity to essentially, again, move upstream. Uh, As in our designing the plan that you read about, the focus on older, disabled, and other populations at home um, really has a specific and important component because those people would prefer to have their care at home. It keeps them out of harm's way uh, and keeps them away from the potential of infection in clinics and uh, in hospitals um, uh, and additionally allows them to stay proximal uh, to where their families might be. Um, uh, and they often prefer hospital care at home. But uh, in general, 
a lot of our policy should focus on how we do the most possible prevention in the older adult population. Just to start with, the mortality rates are extraordinary mm. in China. Um, 14% of people over the age of 80 uh, who were infected um, died. Um, and so having those kinds of mortality rates uh, you know, clearly speak to the notion of any kind of prevention will unburden ICUs, unburden hospital beds, and obviously uh, improve outcomes for people we adore. But secondarily, social isolation, even in ordinary circumstances, has tremendously adverse impacts. There are a number of studies that show that loneliness and social isolation um, uh, are the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day uh, wow. in terms of health outcomes wow. in people who are over the age of 80. And um, right now, we really need to invest and thoughtfully in figuring out how we maintain social connection with every piece of technology and remote intervention we can possibly have, how we congregate people without having them next to one another, how we use uh, teachable technologies for those people to stay connected to their family members, to create groups who are working together, have good book groups and, and people watching movies together and a variety of other things to make certain that the longer term consequences of this in terms of terribly adverse outcomes, not just major depression, um, but also on medical resources um, uh, are really not realized. Um, and that better be part of a proactive intervention. Dr. Gottlieb, we all have been focusing on the bravery of physicians and, and nurses and all the people working in hospitals, putting their own health at risk to care for people who are sick. Then you read these, uh, on the other hand, these horrible stories about uh, because of elective tests and procedures being stopped because of the coronavirus, Boston Medical Center's furloughed 10% of its uh, workers. Uh, uh, that was a Globe story. WBUR did a story about a gynecologist. 50% of her business is gone. Atrius Health um, is patient volume down 75%. Beth Israel Leahy Health, second largest hospital network in Massachusetts, is cutting executive pay and, and, and laying people off and cutting other people's pay. This is all over the place. Um, let me ask you a stupid question. Um, a lot of elective surgeries, if they're not big deals, are performed outside of hospitals. Why can't we just continue with those outside of hospitals so that the revenues can continue and we don't have to have layoffs in the middle of this crisis? Well, a lot of the elective procedures are done in hospitals. They um, are. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, so much of so-called elective interventions are done within hospitals. Um, and additionally, um, we're trying to also trying to have as many people shelter in place as absolutely possible yeah. and protect those people from being in congregated settings um, and trying to put off what feels like it's unnecessary, not because of only not only because of the burden on the healthcare system, but also because we're trying to essentially flatten those curves and hopefully prove Chris Murray wrong in terms of the University of Washington models, um, uh, which you know uh, we would all just thrive to do in every way possible. Um, so, and additionally, frankly, because of the shortages you mentioned in terms of um, various medical personnel, people being redeployed into other activities uh, in order to meet the surge. Um, and some of them aren't active at the present time, um, but they will likely have to become active in order to be able to support the system. There's no question the healthcare system is going to need 
more than a shot in the arm of the $100 billion that was put on the table um, in the recovery bill uh, because of the way it's structured, because of the way its finances are structured, um, uh, and because, very frankly, when the system is preoccupied with something as terrible as this, much of the rest of care um, will get less attention. Um, and, you know, uh, Paul may have mentioned to you during Ebola uh, in West Africa, in Sierra Leone and Liberia, where we worked, um, many more people died from the consequences of inadequate healthcare unrelated to Ebola than died mm. from Ebola during that period of time. More maternal mortality, more uh, infant mortality, less attention to routine activity. So the focus of the system needs also to make certain that we're taking care of people, if albeit remotely, in the best way possible to pay attention to the components that they, we are used to them having, they're used to having, um, but they're also used to having transactionally in person. You know, I have two very quick things before we let you go, Dr. Gottlieb, and thanks so much for your time. I want to take a different cut on this furlough pay cut thing. You used to run a healthcare system. I've spoken to doctors and nurses on air and off at BMC who are not subject to furlough who say they were crushed by the fact, and they are serving COVID-19 patients, and they said they were crushed by the fact that their coworkers, some of whom they knew, some of whom they didn't, uh, were furloughed in the middle of this thing, and they understand the economics and the bottom line. But how do how does a, an administrator not account for the psychological impact on those still working when they see in these kinds of times, you know, ten percent of their coworkers uh, uh, losing their jobs, at least temporarily? I would say these are very difficult circumstances. The issue is how to keep the hospital running so that it can deliver the care that's mm-hmm. critical to its mission. Boston Medical Center has about the best CEO I've ever met um, who is deeply sensitive to every person that works in her hospital. Um, and I assure you that every consideration included the human effects on people she deeply cares about as well as the mission effects on the institution. Um, uh, and uh, making those choices are very, very difficult choices made in certain in times when uh, resources become constrained or they become focused in a way that weren't planned for before um, and none of us have. By the way, that's and Kate Walsh. I you, those are yes. One so last thing, I, speaking I, of stress, did I read yeah, somewhere sure. that you have a kid who's a doctor in New York City? I do. How are you dealing with that and how is she dealing? It's a woman. It's a daughter, yes? It's a daughter, yes. Okay, I'm <laughs> sorry. I do. It's a daughter. Yes. My daughter. Not usually my daughter it. <laughs> <laughs> who is a, a, a brilliant young uh, internist, um, uh, is now a GI fellow at Mount Sinai uh, in New York, um, uh, and uh, she will be redeployed um, to take care of uh, patients uh, with COVID infections. How's she doing um, and how you doing? Uh, she's doing well under the circumstances. I think she wants to make sure that she and her colleagues um, have all of the appropriate protection, uh, all of the knowledge that's necessary to provide the best possible care, um, uh, and all of the safety that is possible in the system. And how am I doing? You know, it's just a lot of my life. So, um, you know, you have to kind of think very clearly um, and have uh, a, a notion that she will do everything as best as possible to protect herself as the institution will as well, um, and that she's young and healthy, um, and um, her heroism will save countless lives. 
I want you to know that one line from you was the highlight of my day, Dr. Gottlieb. <laughs> that was so beautifully put as a father. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, we can't thank you enough for your time and your insight. We really appreciate it. Thank you very thank much, you Doctor. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. Thank you for your time. We do much appreciate it. Dr. Gary Gottlieb is the former CEO of Partners Healthcare System, former CEO of Partners in Health, and a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Thank you again. Coming up at 1 o'clock is going to be the press conference by Governor Charlie Baker. We're going to cover that live and talk to you before and after that. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And as Marjorie said before, and I think as I said before that, at 1 o'clock today. Of course, Jim. You beat which me is, to it. <laughs> which is, Get uh, that in there. <laughs> uh, how much do you like talking to Gary Godley? He's great. Way, as somebody who has been in positions where he's been running Partners Health. Yeah, he's a big deal. Running Partners big In deal. Health. And yeah. has thought about these things for decades. I, when he said about his kid, it almost made me cry. His kid is a doctor in New York City, about to move to serving COVID nineteen patients. And I said, "How are you yeah. feeling?" Talk about being a nervous wreck life. as a parent. Oh my God, Love that is really life. I know. beautiful. In any case, uh, Baker, Governor Baker, will—he's uh, relatively on time, unlike the president, uh, which means shortly after one o'clock, we'll bring you what Charlie Baker has to say live on this uh, day. And in the interim, as we've done in these little holes in the show since this all started a few weeks ago, we'll take your calls for the next few minutes at 877-301-8970 on anything relating to coronavirus that concerns you or that you'd like other people to know or how you're dealing with your time. Originally, before Baker, Governor Baker was scheduled at 1 o'clock, and we obviously decided to take that. We were going to talk to you about a piece that Marjorie read in the New York Times, which we have a lot more time now. So why can't we get anything done? And I'm so I'm not the piece is not that great, frankly. The, piece the great. concept doesn't it is, relate? It is. It, are you going not to do everything? Well, she was writing in this about how she's going to write the Great American Novel. You know, while learn she's, Spanish. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, most of us are not going to write the Great American Novel. But you, you do think you might be able to like clean out the closet? Maybe do that. You know, kind of clean the drawer in the kitchen. Get a few things. So like what do you think? Is that is, she doesn't explain? I mean, Sorry, I shouldn't criticize the person who said Forget her. Is it because we're so upset and preoccupied by all the horrible things that are happening? Mm-hmm. Is it because we're not used to being at home that many hours? And as a result, we don't know quite how to marshal our time. It, what is it? Because I'm in exactly the same. I'm doing fairly well in throwing things yeah. out, which makes me feel good. But beyond that, I'm accomplishing absolutely nothing when I assumed well, that I would Jim, be accomplishing everything. We have an excuse here. We're working. I'm you not know, working Friday. I'm home in the house right, from Friday but, at 3 o'clock until Monday morning. I think she was more talking morning. about people who are kind of furloughed at home. They're not working, so you're going to get all these things done, and then you don't get anything done. And it's very saying, by the way, another But note, what's the reason? You didn't answer. What's oh, the reason? I, well, I think the reason is because if you're not obsessively watching the news about – Coronavirus, or listening to news, then you think I can't take it anymore. Then you're turning and watching some other TV show. You're watching that horrible thing that you watch, that Ozark. Everybody gets it's not it. horrible. It's fabulous. Well, it's very violent, very violent, very bloody. Or you're watching, as I did, like a wussy, sappy, wimpy show like that. This, this is, is us. The repeats of that. Or you're going back and forth between those two things. I think that's. Or you're playing video games. Video games. If you haven't played video games in 20 years, this is the time when you might be back playing video games. So you're doing things that you're not. Um, 
you're not embarking on some great big huge project. Though a lot of people have done yard work. They've gotten their yards uh, fixed up for the summertime. They've done that kind of stuff. They've cleaned the house. A lot of us are cleaning the house because you're not having the housekeepers come into your house, although you should pay the housekeepers because they are in dire straits. Um, uh, a lot of these people that are not they're right, even if they're not doing income. it, right? By the way, on another note, you know, it's got a great column today about uh, uh, is Joan Vinacci in the Globe as she writes about being with her husband and kind of and the dog and the cat. You know, their mm-hmm. children are grown and they're gone, and they're a longtime married couple. Being home with your husband during the coronavirus, it's really good for you, long marrieds out there, to read. Uh, our number is 877-301-8970. Again, we're waiting for the governor to do what I guess has become and has become his daily. Uh, press uh, conferences, and uh, we will take him, as we said. And then our hope is the timing is such that we'll get to end the day on an up note. We haven't had that many of them. Uh, Our buddy, Alex Beam, has written yet another book, this one called Broken Glass. And, uh, you know, I'm going to say this to him, but I'll say it to you. Mm -hmm. This is a subject that I have zero interest in, and I started reading late last night. It is great. Alex is usually talented. And it is really, you can't, it's really a can't put down kind of story. And so we're going to talk to Alex about his new book, we hope, after Governor Baker before uh, today is over at uh, 140 or whatever it is. 877-301-897. Let's try to squeeze in a few calls, Marty. And apologies to callers in advance. We may have to interrupt you mid-sentence if the governor takes to the podium. Okay, let's start with Bob in Worcester. Hi, Bob. Hello, Bob. Hey, morning. First time caller. Love your show. Whoa. Thank you. Thank you. You're upbeat. We needed you, Bob. Take yeah. it away. Well, guess why don't you ask me what I do for a living, and then you can begin your questioning. Okay, what, what do, do you, you do? do? I'm a UPS driver on the west side of Worcester. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I guess you're working a lot, Bob, huh? And you're this happy. <laughs> well, How's that? Well, you know, I'm working. That's why. But I'll tell you. I'm seeing some stuff out here and make your head spin. And, now, you know, you, you kind of want natural selection to take over because I'm seeing some really moronic things out there. Like oh, yeah? Tell us. Okay. First I saw the other day, guy had a mask on. I'm like, oh, great. He's got a mask. He pulls the mask down, decides to light a cigarette. And I'm like, oh, actually, that's real smart. Hey, and Bob, then, keep talking right into the phone because we lose you from time to time. What okay. else? That's All perfect. Right, yeah, that's what else? That's yes. great. What else? The next day, somebody's walking down the street, chewing gum and blowing bubbles. Like, nothing's wrong. Well. It's, just, it's endless. It's well, endless. Yeah, but I, I have to say that one isn't is troubling to me. If you're going to be out and you're social distancing, uh, you, like, do something that distracts you from hey, Bob, the... Bob, my favorite story is about the people... This was in Newton, I guess, but why you can do it in Worcester or anyplace else right. when it finally gets warm. People are out in their driveways having cocktails, and they're talking, you know, 15 feet away from their neighbors. Maybe they never met their neighbors until now, you know, because they weren't outside for a reason. You know what I mean? I, I kind of like those kinds of stories. Got any of those? Well, listen... You're, when you're blowing bubbles and chewing gum, essentially you're ingesting what, what's around you. Are you not? Well, that like, act- if you're chewing gum and blowing bubbles and pumping gas, that's not a good idea either. And pumping gas. Hey, Bob, are you nervous doing what you do? Oh, oh, Bob, we, we lost, lost you. Bob. We're so sorry. Give us your second call again soon. I wouldn't want to be a UPS driver, even though everybody's dependent upon their stuff being you know delivered what? in the middle of this. You know what? I have earbuds. A lot of us do. So yeah. I'm talking the phone. I'm with the earbuds on. My yeah. hands are free. Oh, is, is this live? Here is, here's here's Governor. Governor Baker. We're going to it live on 89.7. That's where the Patriots came in. Oh, it was it's not. not. It's Our not. apologies. <laughs> Boy, that was a false alarm. You know what? 
It's That's a, okay. That was a false alarm. We'll go back to him in a minute okay. when he uh, actually gets it. Okay, there. I'll begin my brilliant story over oh, again. Oh, please. What is about. it? Well, because you know how the, the earbuds cocktail now. Store? Oh, Not oh, the cocktails. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to banging a pan uh, tomorrow night at 7 so o'clock. You're clapping. A, clap, well, you can bang pans too you if can, you want okay, to make fine, a lot okay. of noise right. in honor of all our healthcare workers and EMTs and first responders. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you can do things while you're on the phone because I think a lot of us are spending a lot of time on the phone, right? Calling mm-hmm. our friends, calling our family, checking yeah. in. I cleaned out uh, my medicine cabinet, uh, oh. the entire thing, threw things out, rearranged all while I was on the phone. How's that's, that? That's really good. I was double, uh, not, not double tasking, multitasking there. That was very good. Have you done anything? Have you accomplished anything? I said I have. I've thrown out, I, the only thing I've done, which I shouldn't minimize because it's actually I told you I did a mini Marie Kondo thing. Uh, uh, Jim has been saving all his papers for the, Jim, for, the, for the Jim Browdy Library. Well, I, I was half joking. I was half joking about the Jim Browdy Library. I don't know no, what I was saving Ronald it all for. Reagan ain't seen nothing yet. By the way, you're in a lot of the stories, and what I came upon, which I did not throw out. In fact, next week I'm going to read this on the air. Okay. Marjorie mentioned this the other day. One of the things I, I came say, across was a I nauseating, nailed you. I nailed you, Jim. condescending piece that then. <laughs> Boston Herald columnist Marjorie Egan wrote about That's my right. campaign. I captured you in 1990 perfectly. on a ballot question. That was nauseating. With the Save the Whale and sticker on the back of his car. What, uh, what? Did you have a Save the Whale sticker on the back of your no, car? No, I had one 10 years later, but I didn't have one then. <laughs> I was prescient. I you knew were, it was coming. She said, it, no, she, it wasn't the Save the Whale. You don't even remember your own column. She said, I wore pants with whales on them, which I do not. It's even worse. Let's go to Bob. Well, and I thought Ke- you, you were stop? a wasp. I didn't know you were Jewish. I was. I am, and I was. Bob, you thought I was a wasp. Bob and Canton, you're next on Boston Rowdy. Public Radio. No, it sounds Irish Okay, fine. British. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. What's up? Hi. I'm, I'm curious to know why nobody is discussing the, the war on drugs that was declared yesterday. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was I, a little. You know, talk about distraction. Uh, yeah, that was just monstrous. Yeah, you're monstrous. referring to his coming out at the, at the beginning of the press conference, which was supposed to be about coronavirus and absolutely uh, changing the subject. And you're sitting there thinking, what, what, what's he talking about? This is the president. What, why is he talking about this now? Is that your reaction, Bob? Oh, to put it mildly, I, I was much more upset than that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I just couldn't, couldn't believe that, that in this time of, of international crisis of humanity, that he's playing playing political distracting game distraction games um, when when we need to be united and focused um, he's he's tossing glitter in front of us to to make us pay attention to that rather than yeah. the real task at hand. Well, Bob, thank you for the call. That was one of the point, dilemmas. Actually. We talked about this with Chuck Todd earlier, about how much of the should you cover because, of course, people were uh, uh, news media was criticized, rightly so, I think, because we were fixated on Donald, <coughs> excuse me, Donald Trump so much during the 2016 campaign. And there's been some back and forth about how much of these press conferences should be covered. And um, people were cutting in and out yesterday. CNN was cutting in and out. MSNBC was cutting in and out. The local news had the local news mm-hmm. instead of the president, so, yeah. because what's clear is that uh, this is enabling the president to get massive amount of press coverage on a daily basis in the middle of a re-election campaign. Which, by the way, he should if they were fact-based uh, uh, news, uh, fact-based right. news being provided well, to the American people, in which case what, it should be covered wall-to-wall, but it's not. That's what Chuck Todd was saying earlier, that MSNBC and NBC went back to it when he was talking about coronavirus and when he was talking about when he had the D- Department of Defense Secretary there, Esper, Esper, and when he was talking about the war on drugs, uh, people were cutting away when they figured it out because it was kind of a 
a bait and switch sort of thing? So I am the last person on the planet. I'm self-aware enough to know to accuse anybody of being verbose. But let me just say, uh-huh. uh, the president of the United States cannot answer a question that takes five words and anything less than 500. And well, here we go. Here is the real Charlie Baker live at the podium. Sort of tee up the way we think about at this point in time, this is going to play out, and our efforts to ramp up our medical capacity, as well as a few other announcements that are related to the mitigation associated with that. Over the last several weeks, we've put into place several measures that have changed in some respects the way we all live our lives. And we know that this has been extremely hard for everyone, and I want to thank once again the people of the Commonwealth for their patience with respect to all of this. I just want to emphasize that all of the measures that we've put in place have all been about flattening the curve, meaning we've been trying to avoid having cases peak all at once here in Massachusetts, which would overwhelm our health care system. And based on the experiences of other countries, we've always expected that there would be a surge here in Massachusetts. So for the past few weeks, We've had a talented group of experts working through the command center with academics, healthcare experts, and public health folks to plan a coordinated response based on the modeling associated with how the surge might appear, what it might look like, and how it would land. And I just want to say that um, Dr. Fauci said something interesting about projecting the surge the other day where he said that As every day goes by and you collect more data, not just from your own experience, but from the experience that's going on in other parts of the world, you can rethink and adjust your model accordingly. And that's exactly what we've been doing. But one of the major points I want to make today is the other guidance that he and others have put forth is that people should plan for the worst and do everything they possibly can to make sure they have the capacity to deal with that and then make adjustments based on changes in experience, changes in data, and changes in uh, other countries and other places' experience as we go. And that's exactly what we plan to do. The medical advisory group that we worked with modeled out with us when we expect to have the surge, how many cases we can expect, and what level of care people will need. We developed these models based on the experience in Wuhan, China, and adapted that to reflect Massachusetts' population and hospital bed capacity. An epidemiologist at Harvard, at the University of Guelph, which is in Canada, Northeastern and the Command Center's Medical Advisory Committee have been working through and sorting through this data to come up with what we anticipate to be the latest on how this is going to look. We estimate at this point in time that the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Massachusetts will range somewhere between 47,000 and 172,000 cases during the course of the pandemic. That's about 0.7% to 2.5% of the total population of Massachusetts. And at this time, the modeling indicates that hospitalizations would potentially peak between April 10th and April 20th. And the current fatality rate in Massachusetts is lower than in many other parts of the country and the world, currently running at approximately 1.5% of those infected. It's important to remember, as we've said many times, that roughly 80% of those who do become affected have flu-like symptoms and that many have no symptoms at all. While this model is based on Wuhan's projections, we do anticipate Massachusetts' trajectory could differ for several reasons. For example, 
In Massachusetts, we have lower population density. We enacted strict social distancing standards and rules sooner than they did there. And we have a lower smoking rate. Our team also reviewed how COVID-19 impacts other states and other countries around the world and lined our projections and expectations up against those. And based on the projected infection rates, our team went to work figuring out what peak medical demand would look like and what it would require to support it. For example, how many people will need to be hospitalized, how many will need intensive care or equipment like ventilators, and for how long. Secretary Sutters and our administration have been actively engaging with our hospitals and the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association on this issue uh, for several weeks so that we all are basically working off a similar playbook with respect to what's required to meet the projected need. As I've said many times, we're fortunate to be home to some of the best hospitals and best healthcare leaders in the country with extraordinarily talented medical teams. And just as hospitals plan for an increase in patients suffering from the seasonal flu every single year, we're now planning for COVID-19 with them, but at a much greater scale. We've taken steps to provide hospitals with the flexibility that they need to significantly expand their ICU capacity. We're also asking our academic medical centers and teaching hospitals to expand their ICU capacity. We believe that after hospitals execute on their surge plans, that is, what they believe they need to do with their current resources to add beds, staff, and equipment, more beds will still be needed for both intensive care and for acute care here in Massachusetts. And based on our projections, we believe we need to expand capacity of ICU beds by approximately 500 beds in the coming weeks. And based on our projections, we also know we need more ventilators. And as we've said before, we've been chasing supplies uh, from the federal government and through other sources to deliver ventilators that we've requested. They will obviously be critical to closing that gap. In addition, we're also aiming to find or build out an additional 750 to 1,000 beds using field hospital technology, which is a proven approach that's been used around the country and across the world to create additional capacity to deal with fluid situations just like this one. Along the way, we've also been working on developing other alternative care sites to meet the projected need for both acute-level beds, step-down beds, and SNF-level of care beds, skilled nursing facility level of care. Yesterday, the Lieutenant Governor and I visited the field medical station that's being set up at the DCU Center in Worcester. It's a 200-bed facility, which will represent about a quarter of the acute care, additional acute care need. Facilities like this will help clinicians relieve the pressure on the healthcare system by treating those patients that do not have to be in a traditional hospital at some point in time in their treatment um, to be treated. This Worcester site is the first of three medical field stations that we're working to set up in Massachusetts. The Boston Convention and Exhibition Center has been identified as a possible site for additional capacity, as well as uh, Joint Base Cape Cod and the Mass Mutual Building and other smaller locations around Massachusetts. We've secured a contractor who can build out sites once a healthcare partner has been finalized, and we'll continue to pursue these initiatives over the course of the next week to 10 days. We're also securing 1,000 beds of step-down care options in nursing facilities for stabilized COVID-positive patients. 
Beaumont Nursing Home in Worcester will provide 300 beds for this important function to protect our seniors. And this step-down plan will help hospitals make room more quickly for new patients once someone gets stabilized. This is a new model we're pursuing based on what we've learned from other areas that have been hard hit by this virus. I'm going to repeat again that we know all models are not perfect, but obviously you need to plan for the worst and hope at the end of the day you don't need to go quite that far. But even with the best planning, we certainly expect our medical system will be stretched. We're going to continue to work around the clock with our healthcare system and with our provider community to prepare for what will likely be a very difficult period. I know there's a lot of information out there for everyone at home. The most important thing I would say is what we've said before is that we need to continue to pursue the strategies that we've been pursuing to flatten the curve and stretch out and reduce the spread. Stay at home social distancing, six feet apart, wash your hands, hand sanitizer, take this stuff seriously. It is a powerful weapon and has been proven in many cases to be the most powerful weapon of all that we have available to slow the spread of this virus. And if everyone plays their part, we can flatten the curve and reduce the strain on our health care system and on our communities. Before I turn the mic over to Secretary Sutters, uh, I just want to comment on uh, some news that broke this morning. I think, as many of you know, the Commonwealth received some welcome news, which is a large shipment of N95 masks that will be arriving at Logan Airport later today. Thanks to the generous and hard work, generosity and hard work of the Kraft family and many other partners, Massachusetts will receive nearly 1 million N95 masks for our frontline healthcare workers, emergency professionals, and first responders. Most of that shipment will arrive tonight, with more on the way shortly after. I want to extend my sincerest gratitude to our partners in this, and there were many. Ambassador Wang Ping, Chinese ambassador out of New York, played a major role. Dr. Jason Lee, Gene Hartigan, our partners on the ground in China, Tencent, and our COVID-19 command center. This was a collaboration between U.S. and Chinese governments and private sector folks and required a lot of support from many entities and agencies along the way. We're grateful that the Patriots' plan was able to land in China, load up, and return quickly to the U.S. I also want to thank the People's Republic of China for going to the lengths they went to to make this humanitarian aid trip possible. Later today, Massachusetts will receive this vital shipment at a most critical time. Some of the masks, as has been previously reported, will be directed to New York uh, and to New York City, where everybody knows uh, they're very much in the throes of dealing with COVID-19, and to Rhode Island as well, where the outbreak continues to spread there. I think, as everybody knows, securing personal protective equipment is a challenge. From masks to gowns to head covers, our frontline workers critically need the right gear to keep themselves and the folks that they're working with safe. The Commonwealth has been chasing these supplies through a variety of supply chains and requesting gear from our strategic national stockpile. We were able to secure this big order of masks from China, which is a great thing, and we're all extremely pleased to have it finally here. But for a variety of reasons, we always will need additional gear. The Kraft's 
were terrific. They were a phone call away and immediately went to work on the logistics associated with this and did not stop until they could make it happen. This was a total team effort on every level. There is still, with respect to PPE, much more work to be done. But a momentary success like this along the way and all the community generosity that came with it is something that can help everybody working together and keep people healthy and safe. And for that, we are all enormously grateful. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Secretary Sutters. This is Secretary of Health and Human Services coordinating the state's response. Mayor Lou Sutters, you're listening to 89.7 WGBH live coverage of the governor's press conference. Good afternoon. In addition to the news that the governor just shared about the extraordinary, extraordinary effort today in delivering so much N95s to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and for Rhode Island and New York. I also want to say that MEMA and DPH today will be delivering over 100 shipments of PPE to hospitals, nursing homes, police, fire, EMS, cities, and towns. By the end of today, MEMA and DPH will have coordinated at least 700 deliveries of PPE. And as soon as the shipment arrives at Logan Airport and is taken to um, the warehouse, we will quickly inventory it, inventory, inventory it uh, as well as get it ready for quick delivery out to our hospitals and others. In addition to trying to chase down every supply chain, we're also trying to determine what we can do to ensure we have sufficient supplies of N95 in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So working with partners in the Mass Hospital Association, Partners Healthcare has been able to secure the Battelle 90, N95 decontamination system that, as some of you know, has received national press attention. It's scheduled to be operational in the Boston area by Monday, April 6th, and I really want to give a shout-out to Partners Healthcare. The Battelle system uses FDA-approved N95 decontamination technology, it is the fourth site operational in the United States. We moved very quickly to secure Massachusetts as the fourth location. The Battelle-owned and operated system is hosted by Partners Healthcare at the currently vacant Somerville Kmart site that's adjacent to I-93. The system can contaminate up to 80,000. Decontaminate. Did I say contaminate? Yes. Okay, so the system can decontaminate up to 80,000 masks per day, which should cover all demand in Massachusetts over time. The current pricing is $3.25 per mask. Battelle has indicated it will reduce the price when it reaches national quantity levels. Each N95 can be decontaminated, disinfected, five to ten times before it has to be disposed. The principal benefit of this turnkey system is that it is fully staffed industry grade and brings a level of quality assurance that will allow hospital teams to concentrate on other priorities. Battelle is a defense contractor and runs chemical and biological defense for homeland security. That's a significant win for Massachusetts. Some additional updates. As I believe I've announced here before, the Commonwealth implemented a pilot project that allows for safe on-site testing of residents of nursing and rest homes with a quick turnaround. The pilot is operating, actually I'm not calling it a pilot anymore, I'm just calling it a program, is operating under the auspices of the Massachusetts National Guard in partnership with the Department of Public Health and the Broad Institute. 
Samples are collected by trained personnel from the Massachusetts National Guard. The nursing home project that we launched on Tuesday is now ramping up to full force. We have 16 members of the Massachusetts National Guard deployed, and an additional 45 will be added to the team in the next couple of days. We have a single point of contact for nursing and rest homes seeking help with testing. So far, the program has tested 280 individuals, and we plan to reach more people in the coming days. In fact, 14 facilities today, 14 facilities today are having on-site testing. We are focused on homes with known clusters of cases, as well as facilities that are transitioning into COVID-19 nursing homes. We've issued guidance instructing facilities with on-site medical staff. So if facilities have on-site medical staff, we've issued guidance to them that they can swab their own residents and we will provide the sampling kits. This will help our National Guard testing team reach as many nursing homes as possible. Massachusetts has a total of 700 long-term care facilities, including 380 nursing homes, 255 assisted living residences, and 62 rest homes. We've identified COVID clusters in about 78 facilities, and as you know, as, as COVID-19 continues to evolve, that number will change across nursing homes, rest homes, soldiers' homes, and assisted living residents. And we will be publishing the data about this in the coming days. We know that older residents, particularly living in long-term care facilities, are at high risk. We know from the experience of other states that there would be clusters, but frankly, if we hadn't put the restrictions in place that we had, the situation probably would be worse. We are working hard to mitigate these clusters and keep residents and staff safe. Update on Chelsea and Holyoke Soldiers Homes. The Chelsea Soldiers Home implemented a continuity of operations plan in early March, preparing for COVID-19, establishing an incident command structure in order to proactively prepare the home's response. The Chelsea Soldiers Home has and continues to implement the guidance issued by the Department of Public Health, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Guidance, and the Department of Veterans Affairs, including they had implemented cleaning measures per the current Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Guidelines, including isolation rooms and quarantine zones for COVID-19 positive residents. They increased the use of PPE, they restricted visitors, and increased personal hygiene measures and increased disinfection protocols. On Wednesday, the Boston VA healthcare system deployed a medical team to test residents at the Chelsea facility. This was another proactive step by Chelsea to identify the risk in the facility and get residents appropriate care as well as to reduce the potential spreading through the facility. The test results included nine veterans who are now newly tested positive. Upon notification of these new positive results, the Soldiers Home worked with our partners at the VA Boston Healthcare, who quickly assisted in finding appropriate care and placement for veterans. Deep cleaning has been and continues to be conducted through the facility per CDC guidelines. As of Thursday at the Chelsea Soldiers Home, since March 1st, two veteran residents have died, nine veteran residents have tested positive, and seven staff have tested, two positive, two negative, and three pending. At Holyoke, testing has now been completed for all residents, and the results are coming in. 
the total number at the Holyoke Soldiers Home as of Thursday, this will be this morning, eight veteran resident deaths, 23 veteran residents have tested positive to date, and seven staff have tested positive. Based on these results, isolation and quarantine zones have been being established to contain the virus outbreak. The National Guard continues to be on site, supporting staffing needs con to conduct staff testing and support the clinical command structure that we announced on Monday. The testing and screening of all employees continues as they arrive for work. Staff are screened now multiple times a day and are asked to leave work if they have elevated temperatures. The clinical command structure has focused on implementing immediate controls, staffing and protocols, increased PPE to protect the health and safety of the residents and staff. This has included clinically assessing and triaging all residents and determining their care needs. Establishing clear protocols for and implementing transfers of patients to hospital level of care where needed, subject to the advanced directives of residents. Identifying and implementing infection control measures, and an infection control nurse started there this morning for clinical staff and care, as well as for housekeeping, nutrition, and other supports. We, have updating, we are updating staffing protocols and measures, including, as I said, the deployment of National Guard clinical resources. Despite the clinical command structure establishing order and medical protocols, COVID-19 is a highly contagious virus that has a much more severe impact on older adults and those with underlying conditions. The majority of the residents at the home and the numbers of infected residents and deaths will unfortunately continue to increase over the next coming days. Families have been able to reach out to the Soldiers Home in Holyoke using a family dedicated hotline and email inbox to check in on their relatives and loved ones and it's available six days a week, and obviously the email is seven days a week. Thank you, Governor. Questions? Governor, if the state gets 50,000 Say again? Is back at the podium taking questions. This is so Mary Lou Sutter's. Um, the command center's medical advisory committee, and in particular was Dr. Paul Bedinger, to put together a process to determine the fair and equitable distribution of ventilators. And it will be determined by a group of medical experts from the hospitals, including academic medical centers and community hospitals. So when the requests come in, it will be this panel of experts, like a Eureka panel, to sort of make the, the, the uh, allocations. If you can't hear the question, it's about whether or not there's some um, reports so about have, faulty uh, ventilators coming out of the feds. We have repeatedly requested for ventilators from the federal government, and we've actually increased our ask today. So we've not yet received any ventilators, and of course, any ventilators that come in will immediately go to hospitals to be tested before that they would be utilized. Uh, 1,400 was the first one. Yeah, we requested 1,400. Yeah, it's hard to answer. Are you looking for me or for the secretary? Okay. Do we have a qualified people to operate all 
So, in, in fact, uh, on the guidelines, one of the things uh, important to the guidelines is also if you had the facility, if you had the equipment, do you have the capacity to operate, uh, to use it? So, obviously, respiratory therapists um, is a sort of a new, a new profession, uh, and we all know there are not lots of respiratory therapists. Also, nurses who are anesthesiologists, anesthesiologists, I cannot get the words out today, my apologies. Anesthesiology nurses can also uh, use ventilators. So we are hoping that between respiratory therapists and uh, nurse anesthesiologists that you would have some, you know, you'd have the capacity to use them. And honestly, uh, I want to get the ventilators in Massachusetts and then figure out what we need to, for staffing in order to use them. So um, the, I, I'm going to start by saying I will get none of the details on dates correct, okay, because I feel like March 6th to today has been one day, all right? I don't know. I can't keep track of it anymore. Um, so what I do know is that sometime around the time that um, we had our uh, three million masks that we had ordered through BJ's um, confiscated in the Port of New York that uh, at that point it became pretty clear to us that using what I would describe as sort of in a traditional approach to this wasn't going to work and um, and just started calling everybody I could think of who might have um, the ability to help us access and 95 masks, which were clearly viewed at that point. That was the loss. It was 3 million N95 masks that we lost in the Port of New York. So um, that was clearly sort of goal number one. And, um, and it wasn't just about calling people who had connections to or relationships in, um, in, in Asia. We were, also, we were also calling people who had relationships in Europe, people who had relationships in Canada, people who had relationships in Mexico. I mean, one of the best parts about being in Massachusetts is you have a lot of organizations and individuals who have global networks. Um, our colleges and universities have global networks. A lot of our businesses have global networks. Um, a, lot of our, um, a lot of our cultural institutions have global networks. So if you start calling these people, um, you may eventually land on someone who has the ability to help you figure out how to actually put something like this together somewhere. And um, we eventually landed on some folks who could help us um, navigate some of the issues associated with how you would do this if you were trying to make a big purchase in China. And, um, and then the question became, okay, we have somebody who we think uh, can help us actually execute on a purchase, but then the question becomes, how do you actually get it back? And I didn't want to go through the same exercise we'd gone through previously with, um, with the Port of New York. And so we concluded that the, the best way to make this happen would be if we could find a private um, trip that we could treat as a humanitarian mission. And um, that was when I, um, I called uh, Jonathan Kraft and, and said, I think we have a way to access a procurement in China, um, but I don't know how to get it back here. Um, and we think pursuing this as a private humanitarian mission is a far better way uh, to make this happen than trying to do it through sort of traditional commercial means. And, um, 
And along the way, as I said, um, Ambassador Wong was incredibly important to making this happen out of New York. Um, the, um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in China was extremely helpful, and a whole bunch of other people, both on this side and on, um, on their side, uh, understood the nature of what we were trying to achieve. And, um, and Tencent, which is the company that in China that actually had the gear, um, was the sort of connection point uh, to make it happen um, once the plane landed there. And, um, and I think in many ways, um, I'm really grateful for everybody who was involved in this because you combine that shipment with the machine that Secretary Sutter's talked about, and while we will never have enough gear, we are always going to be seeking gear. We have a huge pipeline of additional asks and potential orders and all the rest um, that's going to play out over the course of the next couple of months. Um, this gives us the thing we have heard time and time again from first responders and emergency med medical personnel and, and nurses and docs and, and everybody else on the healthcare side, which is N95 gear. And the fact that we'll be able to decontaminate it and use it on an extended basis using an FDA-approved machine um, that will be located right here in Massachusetts um, creates a, a shelf life for that equipment uh, that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. We've been carrying live the governor's press conference, Governor Baker's press conference, about the latest on the coronavirus pandemic here in Massachusetts. And by the way, if you want to continue to listen to that, if you go to WGBHnews.org, we will stream it until its end. Marjorie? So the governor um, said that he expects the peak in Massachusetts of illness to be from April, between April 10th and April 20th. He expected in between 47,000 to 172,000 cases of the virus, but he underscored that 80% of people who contract the virus will have flu-like symptoms. He talked about uh, the DCU center up in Worcester being used as a 200-bed uh, facility uh, for overflow that's needed from hospitals. He also said that officials are looking at the Boston Convention an exhibition center in South Boston, a joint base on Cape Cod, the Mass Mutual building, uh, for and, and they also talked about uh, nursing homes, step-down uh, places that they're looking at so that people, if there's infections in nursing homes, which they are uh, looking at very carefully, that they would have opportunities to take some people out of those nursing homes and put them in those facilities. There was some very good news. The governor talked about uh, getting a million masks, N95 masks, those masks that are the really effective ones, a million of them, uh, for Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York. And he credited uh, officials from the Chinese government and uh, officials around here for obtaining those. The uh, Kraft, Robert Kraft from the Patriots, of course, his private plane went to China, procured those masks, and the masks are arriving tonight. Uh, Mary Lou Sutters, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, also talked about something terrific, something called this, this N95 decamination system by a company called Battelle. And apparently, according to the Secretary, what this can do is it can decontaminate up to 80,000 masks 
per day. So this should be a big deal in terms of uh, helping out with the um, overused mass or not enough mass situation. And Mary Lussard has also addressed the Holyoke uh, Soldiers Home where 15 vets have died, uh, that they're swooping down on that place, testing the staff, testing the vets, uh, using uh, isolation rooms and quarantine rooms there and at the Chelsea Soldiers Home for anyone that comes down with the virus. One last thing, uh, just that some of you may not have heard before we take a break, is the governor described the, uh, I believe he described it as the confiscation, which I think is an appropriate word, of three million masks in the Port of New York. What had happened is that BJ's Wholesale Club apparently purchased these three million masks. They landed in the Port of New York and uh, Massachusetts had negotiated to buy them. So as the governor said, they suggested they believed they were going to get three million. And on March 18th, the uh, federal uh, government impounded them. So that is what probably prompted. Remember the our governor on the conference call, all the governors and the president was complaining about having to bid against each other and the federal government always out uh, bidding us, after which the president at his press conferences has been saying, well, whenever we're in conflict or in competition with the state, we'll defer to the state. Obviously, as to those three million masks, which Massachusetts could they have used. They impounded them? They impounded Did them. Did you know that? Yeah. I did not know that until yeah, right now. Well, I didn't know the details of it, but I knew that they – Baker has been complaining about you don't – you know his line? You don't have them until you have them, meaning an order means nothing. Having them in hand is what uh, really I matters. did not know that they've been impounded by the federal government. So there you have it. Okay. So coming up, we're going to change – A break. That's right. We're going to talk with Alex Beam. Move over Vladimir Nabokov. Writer Alex Beam's latest fixation is Mies van der Rohe. It's the subject of his latest book. Alex joins us for that next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Joining us on the line is Alex Beam. And every time he does join us, we marvel that his name is Alex Beam because when Alex writes, very similar to Alex Hamilton, his skill with a quill is undeniable. And boy, is it ever today. We're taking a break from coronavirus talk. Alex Alex Beam's latest book, which just came out days ago, is getting truly outstanding reviews everywhere. It's called Broken Glass. Mies van der Rohe, Edith Farnsworth, and the Fight Over a Modernist Masterpiece. And if you think self-isolation and sheltering in place is driven into territorial disputes about your home, it cannot compare to the feud over the Farnsworth house. You can catch Alex tonight. We can catch him in a few minutes here. But after that, at 7 o'clock at a virtual event sponsored by the Harvard Bookstore. To learn more and to participate, harvard.com. Slash events, Alex. Congratulations! We just got it yesterday. It is spectacular. Yeah, you've got you've got the the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, everybody fawning over you, Alex, fawning over you. Chicago Tribune, bookshelf. Listen to nervous laughter. Yeah, but before yeah, we get nervous to... laughter ensues. Exactly. When are they going to start telling the truth? No, no, no. By I've the been way, loving it. Before we talk about the book in a second, and let me just read for people who think we're just doing this because he's a colleague of ours, sort of. Broken Glass is an engrossing, in-depth narrative of how the human interaction between client and architect produced the famous house. Uh, Van der Rohe was one of the most influential architects of the 20th century. Mr. Beam, that'd be Alex, provides an exceptionally perceptive character study as complex and often impenetrable figure. Not only are the, is the book getting incredible reviews, if you look at Alex's picture on the promo oh, for, tonight's, for tonight's thing at the Harvard Bookstore, the virtual event... It wasn't taken more than, I'd no. say, 30 or 40 no, years no. ago. Jim, uh, no, 
Alex combed his hair for it was the picture. We haven't seen Alex with combed hair in about 15 years. But you combed your hair, Alex. The beard was in good shape. You looked gorgeous. Tell us the story, exactly. Alex Beam. For those that don't know, and I did not know, I knew of the house. Hold I knew on. none of the backstory. Are we going to ask him how he's holding up with coronavirus or not? No, later. I'm not. Uh, he's let, it go. let it go. Thank you for asking. I'm fine. Okay, good. good. Uh, tell us uh, the story. Well, it's a, you know, it's a book about a very extraordinarily beautiful house called the Farnsworth House outside of Chicago. And it's the story of this relationship between Mies van der Rohe and this amazing woman, Dr. Edith Farnsworth. Basically, you know, to, to, I hope people will get to the book, but basically they're, they're dating. She's single. She's an accomplished doctor. And um, she's got nine acres outside of town. And she says, will you build me a, a house, a country house? And he ends up building her this exceptionally famous, very simple steel and glass structure um, that is now kind of an, a complete architectural classic, um, but in some ways was was utterly unlivable. And I mean, there's so much material. <laughs> utterly. That, I mean, you can actually get a book out of it. Um, it, it it's you know it, it, this woman. I mean, uh, in her 40s, is sort of invited to live in, in, in the state of nature, as it were, you know, in a completely glass house. Yeah. Um, it turns out, you know, if you've ever been to Illinois, it, it's cold as heck in the winter and it's sweltering in the summer. And the, you know, Mies van der Rohe is, is a complete design genius. I mean, certainly cannot be argued, but, like, basically never took mechanical engineering at the Bauhaus. So, you know, the heating really doesn't work. The, the windows slime up with uh, oil residue. Um, the roof, I mean, his, he had one of his best people do the roof. Um, there's a torrential rain pour uh, within just a few weeks of Farnsworth moving in, and her floor is, like, two inches deep in rainwater. And, and I haven't even gotten started, frankly. You haven't gotten started. It, it, it was sweltering in the summertime because it's all glass, of course. You, you couldn't, you're sweating all the time. It was mosquito-infested, but she couldn't get the screened-in porch she wanted. She couldn't even get a closet. I mean, this guy sounds like a little bit of a control freak, and I can see where their romance went south because, I mean, he says, oh, well, you don't really need, you don't really need to bring a closet in a, in, a, in a weekend house. You can just hang your dress on the bathroom door. I love that part. Oh, yeah. I know. And I mean, he lobbied against a second bathroom and he didn't want to give her a hook for her nightgown. <laughs> it's, it's a, it, it gets, yeah, yeah. It's, on the other hand, I mean, he also, incredibly, while they were designing the house, it's near a, a river, an Illinois river called the Fox River. And Meese and his people sort of very casually asked, um, the neighbors, you know, does the river ever flood over its banks? And the neighbors sort of casually said yes. So the house, in fact, is on these beautiful white columns of the steel girders. It's about four feet, five feet, four inches off the ground. And while he was building it, me said, well, if it, um, if the river comes over its banks, you know, you can always just use a canoe to get to the front door. <laughs> and, it, and that's like crazy stuff, except they did, in fact, have to use a canoe and, and other like boats to get to the front door because the river has continually flooded. Anyway, it's a I don't you know, this isn't the entire thrust of the book, but there's there's certainly a lot of friction, shall we say, in there between architect and client. 
By the way, I, I have to tell the truth because, as you know, since you described me as this on the air very uh, charitably a few weeks ago, Jim, you're not exactly Lord Literature. So I, I, I didn't – the only thing I knew about Mies van der Rohe before I started reading your book last night, he's the less is more guy, right? He's the one that – that's his line, right? Yes, he's, he's, he's famously associated, Fine. yes, with that line. Okay, so what does the word U-R-T-E-X-T mean? I had to go five pages before I got a word that I didn't understand. Usually it's much quicker <laughs> in your columns. What does urtext mean? Then I'm going to read something from the book. Oh, well, the, the, the urtext means the ultimate type, the, the kind of the, 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 typo, the ultimate typology on which, uh, the, the prime example on which others are based. Okay, so here's the, in the prologue, for those who are saying, well, I'm interested in the relationship, but who cares about the house? Well, uh, it, Alex quotes early on this architect critic whose name I can't pronounce, has called the Farnsworth uh, house, the urtext, whatever that is, of modern residential architecture. And this is what this guy said. Ernest Hemingway famously wrote all modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. It might as accurately be said that all modern houses come from Mies van der Rohe's Farnsworth house. So we're not talking uh, small time here. This obviously the impact of this and the world of architecture is uh, immense, not to mention well, right. the backstory. I mean, you know, it basically was completed in 1950. I mean, if you've ever seen the TV show, Bosch, which I kind of hope you have. I mean, um, Bosch no. lives in a cantilevered house. You know, it's cantilevered over the Los Angeles skyline. It's closely modeled on um, the so-called Stahl House. I mean, L.A. is filled with with Mies lookalikes. Some of them built by his his sort of friend Richard Neutra. I mean, this this it, you know. Uh, as I, you know, the Wall Street Journal is still running entire sections on houses in Florida that are essentially all glass, and a lot of that is owed uh, owed to the Farnsworth House. Um, people, I mean, glass on four sides of a house is, shall we say, frowned upon now. Certainly, given Dr. Farnsworth's experience. But um, <laughs> you know, yeah. on, on a on a briefly serious note, no. um, Meese, Meese did show what could be done with. Um, steel that came right out of the steel mill, which he painted white, and then these enormous panes of glass, which at the time, they were, they were 16 feet long and 8 feet high, were, um, were technological marvels. How'd you get into this, uh, Alex? What intrigued you about this story? You know, um, I wanted to write a specific kind of book. I wanted to write a book about an architectural masterpiece that I found beautiful and that had a kind of an incredible um, paper trail um, from the architect to the house, from the architect to the client, and in the other direction. And someone actually mentioned the Farnsworth house to me. Um, I saw it. I, I happen to love it. It doesn't mean everyone has to. I happen to love it. And um, there was a paper trail. Um, Dr. Farnsworth, who later became a translator and a poet, um, had written a kind of uh, autobiography, which was extremely useful, but maybe more to the point, and I'm not sure the person who told me about this knew, knew it at the time, but there's, there's this 3,500-word uh, trial transcript um, that, that was hard to locate. I mean, I, I had to – people helped me, let's put it that way. But, um, you know, for a journalist uh, and a writer, as, as Marjorie knows, um, when you have that many trial documents, um, first of all, there's going to be an amazing level of detail – about every element that went into building the house. Yes. And second of all, it's all under oath, so you're pretty comfortable quoting from it. 
Yeah, and and that's what happened. I mean, she got she got fed up with him after a while, and they got into a dispute. The price of the house kept rising, and their love affair went south. And then she sued him, right? And she, could we say she, well, she got twenty five hundred bucks. That's not very much money. So did she lose, or did they view yeah, her as a scorned really, woman? Really, it's very it's a it's a bizarre story, and, and in point of fact, uh, Vanderose sued her. Oh, he sued her. Sorry. Yeah, because um, she wouldn't pay him. He 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 didn't know how to keep track of money, basically, and um, the the house was way over budget. And um, on his books, she owed him five thousand dollars. So he he made this terrible mistake um, and filed a claim against her uh, in in court in Illinois. And then there's this crazy sort of sub story, which is that she purportedly saved the life of a lawyer who was in his 30s who turned out to be not only a very rich lawyer but actually a very good lawyer and one at her at his bedside in the hospital she said you know i'm having these terrible headaches the 20th century's greatest architect has just sued me for five thousand dollars and this guy's in the hospital bed and he says well i'll defend you and not only that i'll defend you for free and um, so, in any case, this absurdly long, drawn-out trial, you know, spins forward. Meese really loses his shirt on legal fees. He does, quote-unquote, win in the end. I mean, I think he's paid off with $1,500. But the, the whole, I mean, I liken it to a divorce case. Again, you know, a subject that listeners can identify with. And it really wasn't uh, a dispute over what was called a mechanics lien. It was really a vitriolic divorce case where both... Vanderoe and Farnsworth uh, took the stand and and really really lit into each other. So I mean in, in oh, terms good. of rank Yeah, in terms of rank gossip, this is a kind of unusual book about architecture that is is rich with rank gossip. But you de- dedicated the book to Edith. I assume that's Edith Farnsworth, so it seems to me you were taking her side or is it a different Edith? No, no, I, I, no, I Jesus, that, that's embarrassing to me that it's not clear. I I, I no, it's yeah, clear. I, mean, I just want to make sure. No, no, I, I dedicated it to Dr. Farnsworth um, because in what the book what 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 the book really has that's never been written about, and it's not the most earth-shaking thing by any means. But I mean, she's sort of brought forward. Uh, she's heretofore been famous only because her name is on this yeah. uh, very beautiful house that's you know in the architecture courses, and um, I guess I you know I just sort of did the archaeology to bring her forward as a person and so that she, she could have her her say in this dispute with with Vanderoe. Um, most most accounts simply dismiss Farnsworth as a, a useless dilettante and, and that's that's crazily unfair. She's uh, it, I mean I I'm happy to be part of a kind of much more general Yeah, woman of substance. You know, even the though movie? the timing the movie? for release of a new book is not spectacular, knowing how you're not exactly a people person, how much do you love that the book event is a virtual event? Does it is that fabulous or what? <laughs> okay. It is fabulous and um People are signing up, and um, I'm actually, you know, it's it's a, one of these in-dialogue things with um, the architecture professor and writer, uh, Vitold Ripchinsky, who's actually an unbelievably accomplished in the field. And uh, I've read several of his books. He's, he's, he's probably the most fluid architecture writer in the English language now, and he's refusing to talk to me beforehand. Oh, so um, we're going to go at it completely Alex. cold. I have, I have no idea... Uh, what's going to happen, but at least 50% of the talk 
will be by someone who knows something about our <laughs> Okay. We're almost out of time here, Alex. Did you sell this to the movies? Ralph Fiennes is going to star in this as Mies van der Rohe. Did you sell this book? No, no. I mean, another guy named Richard Press wrote the screenplay and sold it to Fiennes, and now I have no idea what the... Um, ask me some time for a great anecdote. I can't tell you right now, but a great movie star was actually interested in my book, and I got to have crumpets with her in the South End. Whoa. So I'll save that for the next time. Next week. Hey, Alex, exactly. in all seriousness, this is I've only read the first 50 pages. It is great. Congratulations. Go buy it. Go to the virtual book event tonight. We're going to give you the address in a second. Congratulations to Alex Bean. Yeah, thank Thanks, you Alex. very, very thank much, so much, Alex. Thank you both. Thanks a lot. Stay healthy, please. You okay. too. Okay, Alex Bean's latest book is getting outstanding reviews, and I've read about 50 pages into it. It's really good. It's called Broken Glass, Mies van der Rohe, Edith Farnsworth, and the Fight Over a Modernist Masterpiece. You can catch Alex tonight at 7 o'clock at a virtual event sponsored by the Harvard Bookstore. To learn more about it, go to harvard.com slash events. What's on TV, Jim? A couple of things. Eric Rosengren, who is the head of the Boston Federal Reserve, is going to talk about the state of the economy today and, holding my breath, the state of the economy in the future, personal and larger. And everybody knows Brian Raffinelli, the event planner to the stars. Well, we're going to talk about what events he's been involved in that are taking huge hits in another part of the world the nonprofit world, how they're getting crushed because of this and what their futures look like. So Brian Raffinelli, Eric Rosengren, and a great package from Liz Nieslaus on first-generation college online learning. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley, and our engineer, John the Claw Parker. I am Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Bradley. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a safe and healthy afternoon. Bye.